0: Good evening, folks, and a hearty welcome to our drive-in theater. We just want you to enjoy yourselves. A gay, pleasant evening for all. Oh, a word of caution. Mom or pop, go with the kids when they leave the car. We hope you have a wonderful time.
1: Welcome. Welcome
0: welcome to the Dead Zone. Welcome back, all you late-night weirdos. That's Danny over there, I'm Whitney, and this is the Dead Zone Screening Room.
1: Hello! Welcome back!
0: What's up, what's up? We are uh, getting ready to come to kind of an end of our first little trip here.
1: Yeah, our our first ten episodes. That's pretty exciting.
0: Yeah, you know, we said we wanted to start with the classics, and we certainly did get some heavy hitters, but this one... It's kind of like the granddaddy of all of them.
1: Yeah, I think there's plenty of reasons. This one seems to top many, many lists as far as, like, the most popular horror movies or the scariest horror movies of all time or, you know, the most memorable horror movie. You know, it's it tops so many lists, and I think there's various reasons, and it's because it is so edgy, and it it was a very hot button movie for its time and I think still can be considered so uh you know especially the subject matter and stuff and it's it's quite the movie it's one of those that's meant to make you feel uncomfortable and it does it well
0: yeah it absolutely does of course obviously we're very excited to get into it (laughs) so I I don't think there should be anything that holds us back but before we do Just to recap, a few months ago, Danny and I inherited a traveling drive-in theater and were told to watch horror movies of our choosing to figure out what we want to add to the theater's vault and what to leave behind in the dead zone. The only other rule is to never be late opening the drive-in for those who are able to find us because, oh yeah, the theater moves around. It's never in the same place twice and it's a mystery as to where it'll show up next. But if you can use your knowledge of horror and follow the clues in each episode, you might be able to figure out where the drive-in will show up next. And for our first ten movies, we decided to go with the classics and have deferred to one of the definitive names in horror culture and are using online horror magazine Bloody Disgusting's list of the best horror movies of all time. And this week, it's The Exorcist. I
1: mean, it's, that's it. That's it. What? I can't imagine that many people expected anything less as far as the number one movie on this list.
0: Yeah, and it might not be everyone's number one. Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. yeah. But I I think everyone can uh, kind of understand why it's there.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like this movie has somehow kind of found this way down this path to be kind of its own, I don't know, kind of legendary status in the horror movie realm. Of course. For various different reasons because I know that, you know, again, depending on the subject matter, it depends on what you're afraid of. Um, so yeah, like you said, I don't think it's going to be everybody's favorite horror movie. But yeah, this movie is one of those that I've seen consistently in, in at least the top 10, most of the time, at least spot two or one um, when it comes to top favorite horror movies. So this one was definitely not a surprise to me when we started this venture. Um, and it was one that I was I was eager to get to because it is such an interesting movie.
0: Now, you and I both
1: experienced something
0: interesting watching this because a very long time ago, we mentioned all the time, we have a second podcast called mm-hmm. Creepy Caffeine. One of the first episodes that we ever did, I, th- I think it's episode three and four, we had to make it a two-parter, but we did our favorite scary movies of all time. And we both had this movie very high up on our lists. Mm-hmm. but it had been since we were children, yeah. since we had both seen this movie. And so watching it that far removed now as adults, mm-hmm. it was a completely different experience for both of us. So I am really excited to talk about those changes and what we think now.
1: Yeah, I am too. I, I'm eager to see, you know, if it held up over time Um Or if there was things, I know we kind of both kept saying, oh, I don't remember that or I remembered that differently. So I'm eager to hear what things kind of extended through time in your head. Like, you know, you remembered specific things, but there's certain things that I'm sure just completely slipped your mind or you remembered differently.
0: Absolutely. And I I think this is going to be an interesting conversation.
1: Yeah, I'm ready for it. Let's get into it. So of course now is the time when I should go ahead and warn you guys that if you haven't seen this movie, uh, now is the time to pause it, Um, go check it out. It's available on HBO Max, that's where we ended up watching it, and then I know it's on Apple TV and a few other streaming services to rent. I think it's worth a watch at least one time. I know it's not everybody's cup of tea, and and that's, that's more than okay. If it's not and you just want to hang out with us and hear us talk about it, obviously, I welcome you too. But if you haven't seen the movie and you're, you know, at the very least interested, I definitely recommend to pause it here. Go check it out and then come back and listen to us spoil everything for you because we're going to do it no matter what. So, you know, might as well be prepared.
0: Of course, we should probably add there are a couple of different versions of this movie out Mm because there's the original theatrical version. And then there's the 2000 version where William Friedkin, the movie's director, actually went back and added some things, including... Reagan's famous spider walk down the stairs, which I've never actually seen in the movie. You haven't? No, because the version that we ended up watching last night was the original theatrical one. Mm. So I still can... <laughs> I see that scene all the time. I was like, I've never seen the scene. It's like it's from a completely different movie.
1: I had no idea it wasn't in the original because the the first time I watched it, it was in there. So I, I never realized it wasn't...
0: In the original? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, they had filmed it, uh, but... Friedkin had decided to take it out because, for one thing, it, it happened very early on in the film. And he thought that that was getting a little too crazy, a little too early. Mm-hmm. And then, number two, there was no way technologically at the time to remove the wires that gotcha. were holding the contortionist up.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I've still never seen it, but i'm told it exists so i have to believe (laughs) that
1: it it does does. it's a very good scene i i I, like i said it's one of those that i had no idea that it wasn't in the original and it kind of makes me sad that it it wasn't just even despite the fact that the wires would have been there it it really is a really cool scene that i do think only makes or i guess drives home the point how creepy reagan becomes throughout this movie Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um if it's not in the movie that you're watching i definitely recommend looking up a clip of it and just to Check it out and see how <laughs> spooky it's like. It's a re- it's a really spooky looking scene. Uh, yeah,
0: I mean, like I said, I've seen it, just mm. never in the movie, yeah.
1: wherever. I don't even know where it's supposed to show up. Yeah. I'm assuming
0: around the party scene.
1: I believe so, if I remember correctly.
0: Yeah, so I I just thought it was worth mentioning because if we go through this synopsis and you say, "Hey, you never talked about that one mm-hmm. scene," it's because we didn't see it. Yeah. Uh, I, today, I actually I watched a documentary. Uh, It's on Shudder, if you're interested in seeing it. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. Mm -hmm. It's called Leap of Faith, and it's literally just an interview with William Friedkin uh, talking about making this movie and the decisions that he made and what went into certain decisions that he made. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was really interesting, but it was showing some of these shots that I didn't get to see, and it really made me want to go back and watch it again. For a third time, I really... You know, I'm such a film buff that when you tell me that there's a director's cut, something that that was their true vision, and you tell me I haven't seen that, Mm -hmm. I feel like there's a giant hole in me. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, well, well. That, can't, that that will never stand. <laughs> well, I is... must see how it was originally intended to be seen. <laughs> that is unfair, and I will not stand for it. How dare you, sir? <laughs> well, anyway, so we are doing original theatrical version, so let's start out with the wiki. So The Exorcist is a 1973 American supernatural horror film directed by William Friedkin and produced and written for the screen by William Peter Blatty, based on his 1971 novel of the same name. The film stars Ellen Burstyn, Max von Sydow, Jason Miller, and Linda Blair. Although the book had been a bestseller, Blatty and Friedkin had difficulty casting the film. Principal photography was also difficult due to most of the set burning down and delaying production for three weeks. Numeral members of the cast and crew suffered long-term injuries in accidents, including Linda Blair and Ellen Burstyn. And ultimately, the film took twice as long to shoot as scheduled and cost more than twice its initial budget. The hardships suffered during the course of the production has led many to believe the film to be cursed. The Exorcist was released in 24 theaters in the United States and Canada in late December of 73. Audiences flocked to the film, waiting in long lines during winter weather, many doing so more than once. Some viewers had adverse physical reactions, often fainting or vomiting during particularly intense scenes. There were rumors of severe reactions to the movies, such as heart attacks and miscarriages, but these reports generally seemed to be circulated to hype up the film. The cultural conversation around the movie, which also encompassed its treatment of Roman Catholicism, helped it become the first horror film to be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture, one of ten Academy Awards it was nominated for, which also included Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, Best Director for Friedkin, Best Actress for Burston, Best Supporting Actress for Miller, and Best Supporting Actress for Blair. It would go on to win the Oscar for Best Screenplay based on material from Other Medium and Best Sound. The Exorcist has had a significant influence on popular culture and has received critical acclaim, with several publications having regarded it as one of the greatest horror films ever made, including Bloody Disgusting, which is, of course, the list we're using. The film has spawned four sequels, including Exorcist II: The Heretic, which, I'm sorry, anytime somebody puts two in a sequel, I have to say Electric Boogaloo after it. (laughs) So it's Exorcist II: Electric Boogaloo. That makes sense. Thank you.
1: It sounds way fancier, if I'm going to be honest.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There was also The Exorcist 3, Exorcist The Beginning, and Dominion prequel to The Exorcist. Which, wouldn't Exorcist The Beginning be the prequel? Or was the prequel the prequel to The Beginning?
1: Yeah. Yeah it's like the pre-beginning the, i don't know the beginning to the beginning
0: i didn't even know those last two existed so yeah
1: to be honest i didn't either i think it has one of the uh, scars brothers is that their name
0: scar like scars yeah it has one of the them in it i think okay i saw all right maybe one of the lesser knowns the little one they keep in the attic <laughs> <laughs> little <Skarsgard>. little <laughs> they feed him fish heads go to those movies <laughs> Papa needs a new car. (laughs) In 2010, the Library of Congress selected the film to be preserved as part of its National Film Registry as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. So here we have yet another one
1: of those. Another one. I mean, we're doing the classics, did we mention? It's true. This one, you know, obviously, well, was nominated and won quite a few awards that I wasn't aware of. Yeah, yeah, it did. uh, It did very well.
0: I I think, you know, it's so odd because when Friedkin set out to do this, he never set out to do a horror film. It really was just a dramatic film about the basics of good and evil Mm -hmm. and and, and that constant struggle.
1: Well, I would hate to see what it was going to be like if he actually meant to make it scary. (laughs) Well, I think he knew it was going to be scary,
0: but he just didn't consider it you know horror and it is a little different I mean you know it's not your typical there's not a monster running around with a machete trying to chop some teenager's head
1: off Mm -hmm.
0: you know this is a different kind of film
1: yeah yeah no it absolutely is I think again this is one of those ones that rides really hard on that line of it's, it's really going to be scary depending on what you find scary and also your own personal beliefs. That's going to be a big part in this movie. And this one, like I said off the top, and it's something that we actually talked about last night, I I think the name of the game when it comes to this movie is, is just plain being uncomfortable, which I think if, if this movie wasn't meant to set out to scare a person, at the very least, I think it can get underneath your skin, you know, nearly everybody that watches this there's got to be some part of this movie that just makes you feel a little bit icky you know what I mean Mm -hmm. and and I think when a movie can do that to make you feel uncomfortable to make you feel like maybe I shouldn't be watching this like this is this is creeping me out I shouldn't be here I shouldn't be experiencing this I think that alone while it's not you know graphic amounts of blood and guts and slashers and stuff like that it's still pretty scary To be able to set somebody on edge like that from a simple movie and cause them to kind of feel a little tense the rest of the evening or, you know, the rest of their day or whatever, I think that that's successful. So, yeah, whatever original genre it was meant to be, I mean, I think it's been successful regardless.
0: Sure. I I liken it to uh, Silence of the Lambs. Again, never intended to be a horror film, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, but it certainly does fit in that realm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, And you're right. This is just one of those films. We were talking about it last night about how this isn't just one that you just pull out and just watch every once in a while. Or maybe you do. Maybe that's you enjoy it and, and you do. But for me, for both of us, as we were discussing between ourselves, Mm -hmm. it is an uncomfortable subject. And you're dealing with a very young girl doing very uncomfortable things. Mm -hmm. And it it makes you uneasy. And so that's not something that I generally seek for entertainment value. Meaning, Mm -hmm. if I'm just going to sit down and watch something, a movie I've seen before, I want to have fun and I want to enjoy it. But then there are some mo- movies that I love and appreciate simply for the art that they are. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where this falls in. This is a beautifully made film. Yeah. And, and I, I believe that it deserves all the accolades that it has received. But again, it's not something I'm going to rush out and want to watch all the time.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah, I, I kind of liken it to uh, Gaspar Noe's Irreversible. If anyone were to ever ask me what is the most disturbing film I've ever seen, that would be it. I've seen it. I think it is a phenomenal film in the sense of art. What he did was brilliant. It's literally told backwards. It starts with the end credits, and the beginning scene is the last scene of the movie. So you're watching the story. You already know how it ends, but by the time you get to the ending, you find out where we began, and it is heartbreaking and difficult to watch and I would never elect just to sit down and watch that on a whim for myself again I've seen it I've experienced it I can appreciate for what it was and I'm good Mm -hmm. that's how The Exorcist is to me it's a beautiful film compelling story but I've seen it and I'm I'm good with that
1: (laughs) yeah yeah I, I think a lot of people would fall under that same category as well
0: well, let's start talking about it. Why don't you give him a synopsis?
1: All right. So real quick, it says, When young Reagan starts acting odd, levitating, speaking in tongues, her worried mother seeks medical help only to hit a dead end. A local priest, however, thinks the girl may be seized by the devil. The priest makes a request to perform an exorcism, and the church sends in an expert to help with the difficult job. Difficult job, I think, is uh, really lightening the load. It's it's much more than a difficult job. <laughs> it's a tad bit of an understatement. Exactly. Yeah. I also like how they talk about Reagan,
0: how she's just, you know, typical teenage girl. She's just going through some things. Uh she's having a rough time. And I'm sure if you ask my mother, she would say when I hit Reagan's age that I also was possessed.
1: Yeah. Well you know, puberty always comes with those telltale signs of levitating, speaking <laughs> it in tongues. Be a bitch. Yeah. It's nobody likes it. We don't like talking about it, but it needs to be talked about. We need to know what's going to happen. Yeah.
0: You know, there is a theory. You and I have talked about this before on some of our episodes of Creepy Caffeine when we talk about paranormal stuff. There is a theory that paranormal occurrences and possession type occurrences tend to happen around teenagers, male or female, uh, and they think it might be tied to their hormones, that sometimes that can be just so overwhelming and powerful that they don't even realize that they are actually the ones who are causing some of these things to happen. Mm-hmm.
1: Just a theory. Just, it's a pretty darn good theory. It's and I know many, many parents would agree with you. No doubt. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, starting off in our movie, we are in Hatra, Iraq. And I only know that uh, because that's how the book starts. Uh, and we hear the traditional Muslim prayer. So literally, the first word spoken in this movie is God is great. Mm-hmm. I, and I think that says a lot about what is about to happen.
1: Yeah, I think that they felt like
0: they had to kind of set that tone. Yeah, we're establishing very early. This is the good side. Yeah, this is the side we're on. And this is the side we're going to fight for. Uh, but we're at this dig site. There's a lot of sheep what are they helping with the
1: dig do they carry out dirt well little known fact sheep are not only good at helping you get to bed but they're also great construction workers they're great at tunneling they're great at digging uh they have many tasks and things that they are great at but not many people know about because they only attribute them to sleeping and so it explains the little hats exactly yeah sheep hard hats (laughs) exactly
0: (laughs) Well, we see a little kid running through the site, and uh, he's off to deliver a message, and that is that they found something, and who he is delivering the message to is Max von Sydow himself, Father Marin. You know, he was only 44 when they filmed this. He looks 80.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he looks like... Because I remember last night we were watching it, I was like... Because he was in other things after this movie, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of things before. He's a I want to say Swedish actor. Okay.
0: Very well known, came over here to the States and I believe has
1: blue eyes that rival Steve McQueen. All right. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to argue that. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, I remember last night when we were watching it, I remember thinking like how old was he in this movie because I know that I've seen him in other things that I thought had come out after The Exorcist. And he still, I mean, he just didn't really like age. Like he's just forever looked the same as the way he looked in The Exorcist to me. So I was like, how is he a wizard? Like, do we need to be concerned about the fact that this man doesn't age?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's because they did so well with his aging makeup, which we used to watch Face Off. So we know how hard it could be do- to do age mm-hmm. makeup. I like how we say that just because we watch a show we know, not because we've ever tried.
1: Yeah. That's. <laughs> Firsthand experience. Who needs it? Who
0: needs it? That's not our style. We live vicariously through those on television. Exactly. But yeah, because they made him look older, even though he was only 44. So now you associate, geez, he was that old then? Mm hmm. Well,. Regardless of his actual age, uh, he is supposed to be an, an older gentleman, and Father Marin is attending this archaeological dig, and this is a place that is dates back to pre-Christianity. And so he is there kind of uh, as a consultant, and he's told that they have found something, and, and he comes a-running, and... They pull out various items. There's some lamps and some arrowheads and some coins. And interestingly enough, he pulls out a St. Joseph's medallion on a silver chain. And then right after that, he finds a small statue uh, of a demon. And he knows immediately who it is. And what's interesting about it is, again, like I said, this dates back to pre-Christianity. So there's absolutely no reason a St. Joseph medal... Which, of course, is based on the Christian faith, would be here. That's just not historically possible. So he's uh,
1: very confused, as he should be. I'm. I I think I also kind of started this movie confused. I'll be honest. Every time, kind of like questioning, like, okay, who's this again? What are we doing? What's going on here? Again, like I said, that's that's every time I've watched that. Right. Well,
0: of course, all of this is is laid out a lot more in the book. As, yeah. as an avid reader, you understand that you mm-hmm. get a lot more information. And Friedkin did get a lot of uh, flack for putting this right up front because mm-hmm. a lot of people didn't understand what was going on. Why have we jumped? It seems like you're jumping in the middle mm-hmm, of a movie. Mm-hmm. Who is this person? Why do we understand it? Of course, what is happening is when he comes across this smaller statue, he starts having these... Uh, premonitions of what is to come and it's at this moment that he realizes he's about to be called to go into battle again Mm -hmm. against this demon he he knows that it's it's coming and as he leaves the site he starts having all of these uh visions uh and next you see him at this open cafe and he's kind of nervously ingesting this heart medication Mm -hmm. you realize that this is an old man and can we trust him that he is going to be up to the task he's obviously very frail he's mm-hmm. been through a lot so it's kind of letting you know he has been through a fight before mm-hmm. and uh something is telling him that bad things are coming yeah. so we should all be very nervous when he's back cataloging some of these artifacts uh, with another gentleman. The guy is telling him, Well, the statue that you found, this little mini statue, it's basically evil upon evil. It's, it's, this is a demon, you know? And at that moment, Marin looks up and the clock stops. It just stops.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's kind of like this symbolism of your time has come kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It, it, you are being called, and, and this is what you you've been working up to your entire life and but of course if you ask Friedkin he would he specifically said in this documentary you know I I don't know what that meant that the clock stops I I can't tell you but it felt right to do it at the time and and that's why that little documentary was called Leap of Faith he very strongly believes that he was guided by some higher power while making not just this movie, but all of his stuff. He believes very much in serendipity mm-hmm. and fate, and that things are already laid out and are going to be the way that they're going to be. Yeah, And, and you know, he never specifically said God was the one guiding him. This I certainly don't want to make this some kind of conversation about religion. It's about a movie that happens to mm-hmm. be about religion. But he would state that there is something, some force, some grand design, some greater, uh, thing out there in the universe, guiding him to do the things that he did. And he said it would just feel right in the moment. And so he would do it. And, and that led to a lot of problems on set. He was, he's very much about catching the spontaneity of the moment. Mm -hmm. He talked a lot about, uh, you know, how these directors like Kubrick will go and they'll do like 100, 124 scenes. You know, everybody's heard about poor Shelley Duvall's treatment and having to do those scenes over and over until she was just an emotional wreck. Whereas Friedkin is the opposite. He, you know, as much as possible wants to get things in the first take. And so because of that, that um, didn't make him very popular with his actors. Uh, There are some things that happened on set that were pretty controversial uh he was known for to get these to elicit these surprise reactions he would uh randomly fire a rifle on the set without telling him that was going to happen because he would get that startled surprise look Mm -hmm. or in one scene there's a uh, a scene at the end of the movie where father dyer is uh giving last rites over father Karras and if, if you look closely, as he's giving those last rites, it's a very powerful scene and his hand is trembling. This is his friend who is dying. Well, what had happened was Friedkin kept trying to get that shot and he couldn't get the actor to get there. That man who played Dyer is really a priest. He's not an actor.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so he wasn't getting this reaction that he needed. So he walked over and he said, look, you know, do you trust me? And he said, sure I I trust you and he said okay and (laughs) Friedkin slapped him in the face oh as hard as he could I wouldn't trust him anymore and then turn around and said action and made him shoot the scene and that's why his hand is shaking and afterwards he said no I understood why you did it and they were fine but yeah that's the kind of stuff he would do because (laughs) he was so intent on getting that just intense reaction Mm -hmm. and uh uh, sometimes it, it didn't work out well. He he made some people pretty angry, and uh, it, it was a tough shoot. I think for some people.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've I've heard, definitely heard that throughout the many, like interviews and videos and stuff like that that I've seen, kind of bonus footage surrounding this movie. A lot of people have have mentioned that, but it was it was a tough shoot for sure.
0: Well, another thing that Freakin said is that he loves when people sit around and speculate about his movie things that people like to obsess over and read into. Why do you think he did it like that? You know, he thinks it's interesting to hear how everyone interprets his work because, you know, he says, I don't know why I did it. So I find it fascinating to hear people's speculations as to why that was done the way that it was. So we're just going to speculate the shit out of this movie. (laughs) Well, of course, Father Marin decides he needs to leave. He has this calling now. This, This is his fight. We don't know what that is yet, but he does, and so he has to leave Iraq, and there's a really great shot here where he is leaving, and he walks past a row of men who are bowing to worship and prayer, but they all have their backs to him, and he's walking behind them, so it's, it's almost like Again, here is a speculation of how I interpret that scene. It, it It's almost like these powers that be are saying, you are on your own. This is something that you have to do. This is your time and there's not going to be anyone there to help you. It's like they've turned their backs on him. Mm-hmm. The The second scene that's really gorgeous here is him walking through this open market and there's just these shafts of light that come down that he's walking through and it. You know, as he's passing in from light to dark, from light to dark, it it again is kind of this contrast and this foreshadowing of this fight, this struggle between good and evil that's about to come up, and it's just it's gorgeously shot. Uh, but before he can leave, he gets back to the dig site and sees another larger statue that has now been unearthed, and it's just a bigger one of the small one that that was found. And the demon scene, that statue, it's never named in the movie, but it is in the book. And this is supposed to be an actual known demon named Pazuzu. And it's a demon in Assyrian and Babylonian mythology. And it's supposed to bring famine during the dry season and locusts during the raining season. So, bad guy. (laughs) Bad, bad guy. (laughs) So meanwhile, uh, back in Georgetown in Washington, D.C., Chris McNeil, who is an actress, is studying her lines when she hears strange noises coming from the attic. So she goes and checks on her daughter, Reagan, and closes her window. She walks in the room, and it is freezing cold, and she thinks that's because the window is open.
1: Yeah, I think this scene is interesting because, obviously, we're first introduced to our main characters here and their reactions are a little bit less than what I think is like a realistic especially reacting to like the sounds in the attic and stuff first off like the mom is pretty quick to just basically say like oh it's just some rats no big deal Mm -hmm. those don't sound like rat noises no ma'am they do not those are some giant-ass rats you have. And secondly, that's still not okay, my sis. Like, we <laughs> still need to investigate and see what's going on. She just brushes it off so quickly. And I always think that's so funny because we're listening. I mean, I don't know. I just Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm probably very sensitive. I will admit I'm a very sensitive being, and I get scared easily. But I just feel like there would be more of a reaction there that's like not just, oh, those are rats. Good night, honey. Well, an- another
0: thing you have to consider is... The time that this was made. And not that people in the 70s didn't understand what demons were. Of course they knew what that was. But it wasn't as prevalent as it is today. Meaning, you know, in the 80s we had the big satanic panic. So everybody's talking about Mm -hmm. that. And now we have all these ghost shows. And now we have Zach Bagans coming out here and telling us everything's a demon. So it's certainly a more prevalent concept today than it was Then, in fact, when the studio put this movie out, they thought for the trailer, they were going to need someone to explain in that trailer what an exorcist was. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of people didn't know what an exorcism was. They had never heard of it. So it wasn't as common an idea. It's not going to be the first thing that people think of.
1: However... It still don't sound like no damn rats. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, I feel like at the very least we should be like, there might be a person up there, which yep. is just equally as fucking scary. Yeah, it sounds like someone is upstairs with knives scratching <laughs> on the floor. It's it's really intense. It's it's aggressive, and I am not a fan of it. And I got to say, it, if, if I was hearing noises from my attic and my mom just brushed it off that quickly I'd be like I think that I need to move out because I'm not comfortable with the way you're handling situations I feel like I'm not being heard
0: (laughs) I don't feel supported (laughs) and I do not feel safe I'm gonna gonna go not a safe space do you see the hobo marks on my
1: elbow exactly (laughs)
0: Well, the next morning she goes ahead and complains to her handyman uh, that there are rats in the attic and he agrees he'll put some traps up. Uh, I don't think it's going to help much. (laughs) I'm just saying. Yeah. Well, the next scene, Chris is on a college campus filming a movie, something about a building being torn down. I don't know. Everybody's very angry about it. Uh, And this is the first time we see Father Karras. He happens to be in the crowd. And you're going to start to notice a lot of these serendipitous moments. It's like how convenient that he just happens to show up there. And that is absolutely by design. He wanted to show how because of this fate, because everything is all laid out, that even though they don't know it yet, their paths are already crossing Their their timelines are intertwined, basically. Mm -hmm. And so they keep having these serendipitous moments where they kind of cross paths, although they're not actually interacting with each other yet. Also somewhere in the scene, our author and screenplay writer, uh, William Peter Blatty, appears. But uh, I'm told you kind of have to pause it and look for him. And I didn't have that kind of (laughs) time. But if anyone would like to take the time, he's there somewhere. But it's also the time that we meet Chris's director and friend, Burke, and we're going to find out that he's just not the best dude. He's kind of an asshole. So in our next scene, we get Chris as her day is done. She's walking home, and for the first time, we hear that classic music, that tubular bells from Mike Oldfield. It, I mean, you cannot think of this movie without hearing that kind of tingling notes. Yeah. Yeah. And Friedkin described it as he was looking for a sound that felt like someone just creepily putting their hand on the back of your neck and kind of making, you know, little flitters with their yeah. with their fingers just to give you the creeps. That's what he was looking for. And as soon as he heard this, he said he listened to hundreds of different submissions mm-hmm. for music to use. And he'd play like the first eight seconds and be like, no, no. No. It, it, he just was like, I'll know it when I hear it. And as soon as this played, those notes started, he's like, that's it. Mm-hmm. That is my music. And it is a stunning piece of music. It's, it's actually really long. You only hear a very, very small portion of it. It's like an eight minute long song.
1: Yeah, I think that's what's interesting because that, that song has become so synonymous with this movie. I think it's interesting that, A, it doesn't come right off the bat. You know, a lot of times when we mm-hmm. have the, the music that we associate with the movie, it's kind of like our opener. It's right with the title card. You know, we're seeing it as our beginning scene. That This one doesn't come until, you know, a few minutes in. And then, yeah, it is so brief. I think it's interesting that it, how quickly people latched onto that. As linking it with this movie because it's not in there a whole lot to be honest especially having just watched it like I didn't realize how much it really wasn't in there yeah it's it's few and far between it is only in certain scenes and it doesn't
0: play for very long but it is effective Mm -hmm, it It just shows you how the right music can really make a difference Mm -hmm. for a film Mm -hmm, absolutely well this scene is interesting because it's just kind of represents that calm before the storm this this walk home of chris's you know it's it's like take one last moment to enjoy your normalcy Mm -hmm. she's walking home she sees two nuns walking down the street and it's autumn and leaves are falling and it's windy and their habits are billowing in the wind and it's a very beautiful shot and then some little kids dressed in halloween costumes run past her so we know that it's it's halloween And it's just this beautiful moment and Georgetown's a beautiful city and it's quite quaint and it's just kind of like this little moment saying, all right, take it in while you can because things are about to get real different.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure.
0: Well, as Chris arrives home, she speaks with her, who I'm assuming is kind of like her assistant, uh, and she is showing her the mail and Chris has received an invitation for dinner at the White House. So... That little moment right there is all we need to know that she's kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. I mean, she must be a very well-known actress. And and so we understand right away that here is a woman who has status. status and all the money she needs at her disposal. So if something's going to go wrong, she has everything she needs to take care of it. Yeah. Unless it's something that people don't know how to deal with. Mm-hmm. So, Reagan is up and about, and so we get to see her for the first time. We saw her sleeping, uh, and she loves horses. Who doesn't? I mean, don't all teenage little young girls, I guess she's
1: like 12, tween, they all love the horses. I'm sure that they all do. (laughs) Maybe they don't all voice it. I know I didn't, but we don't dislike them. We don't. Unless you do, then I'm sure there's reasons.
0: (laughs) 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 Horses aren't for everyone. There are two kinds of people in this world <laughs> horse people and non horse people. And they don't sit together. What side of the line will you be standing on? <laughs> well, of course, Reagan also liked cookies. I mean, cookies and horses. Cookies and horses. Talk That's about an aesthetic. Every 12 year old girl's dream. Uh, but now she steals one, and of course, mom's a got horse? a. Re- a cookie?
1: <laughs> it's not a Western.
0: Mama stole a horse. Can we keep it?
1: I named him Satan. I hope it's okay. (laughs) Look, Mama found this horse outside. It's collar says Pazuzu. What does that mean? It's collar.
0: (laughs) Just horse collars with their names on them. (laughs) Walk them around like pets. If you found me, please call. Can you imagine having to pick up after it? Ugh.
1: The horse? Yeah. You know what they have to do with your dog. Can't leave their crap in the street. Oh yeah, I guess that's true. I was thinking they would be an outside horse.
0: <laughs> well yeah.
1: I mean if you're walking it, they're gonna walk far. Got long legs.
0: <laughs> what are we talking about? What's happening? All right. Well, back to it. Of course, Regan steals this cookie mom's got to go after her that leads to a little tickle torture which I imagine is probably one of the scariest parts of this movie for you because you used to have nightmares about that yeah well there you go I don't like it your worst nightmare come to life right there in a movie it really is well of course this whole interaction is to show you that they have this great little mother daughter relationship they get along you're showing this is a normal teenager everything's fine Mm -hmm. so it's important to set that up so we understand how
1: differently she's acting later on And I think that's something that not only does Linda Blair, who plays Reagan, but not only do do I think she does well, but I think casting overall did well in this situation. Linda Blair, in this role where she's at in this age, she really does have this like face of innocence. She's Mm -hmm. got these cute little like cherub cheeks and this, you know, precious little smile. And she just looks like your all-American kid. And, And I think that not only does she do a great job of portraying that and portraying the the shift that's gonna gonna happen throughout this movie, um, but casting itself, you know, you, you can cast whoever you want, but it's not guaranteed that's gonna be portrayed correctly. But I mm-hmm. think that it that it was done very well, um, by Linda Blair, which is saying a lot because she was a, a young kid in this movie and a young kid doing very not, adult things. Exactly, not mm-hmm. a kid movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And of course, they had
0: a, a lot of difficulty casting that role. But, it, you know, this had to be someone who literally represents humanity's innocence. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that just speaks to how well they did with the casting. If you were able to perceive that just by looking at her. yeah, We have to understand that Reagan is innocent and is worth saving.
1: And I think that this movie especially had to do that well because honestly we don't get a lot of time with Reagan when she's mm-hmm. well. Uh, we're we're introduced to her so quickly, and and the first scene we're introduced to her, we're also introduced to demonic sounds happening at the same time. So we're really thrust into this world of knowing that she's going to be our main character that that gets turned basically. So yeah, I like it. I mean, you phrased it perfectly. We we have to be able to be convinced that. Reagan is this character of innocence that deserves saving, and it's hard to do that if we don't know this character's story. We don't know her likes, her dislikes. You know, we don't know her characteristics and her personality. But, yeah, you know, through their casting and through the abilities of Linda Blair to be able to portray certain expressions through her face and just her, you know, her childlike giggle and her innocence and like everything I said before. I think that yeah, very quickly we're able to obtain that idea. Um, without having to be spoon-fed it basically which like I said I think has to be done in this movie if that wasn't there we wouldn't have that empathy and that sympathy that we do throughout the whole movie absolutely yeah
0: well another big part uh, someone else who we need to empathize with and understand is Father Karras and Father Karras is in the subway and he's traveling home to visit his mother but before he can get on the subway he is proposition by a homeless man who, who basically asks if he could spare any change but Karis is kind of horrified from him uh, here we have another great shot that friedkin has set up of of this homeless man he's on the ground uh in the subway and just as the subway is passing so it causes like again this back and forth of uh shadow and light being cast across this homeless man's face and he's kind of blind and he has cataracts on his eyes and you just see light, dark, light, dark, light, dark, as he kind of leans forward. And Karis is kind of uh, repulsed by him. Uh, He kind of is taken aback and it kind of frightens him. And I think that scene can be interpreted a couple of ways because he doesn't end up giving him any money. He just kind of walks away and you think, well, come on, man, what about alms for the poor? This Mm -hmm. is a priest. Shouldn't he be helping him? And you think, Was he too starting to have these premonitions uh, like Father Marin was and he sees something by seeing this blind man that's warning him of things to come? Mm -hmm. Or we also start to learn that he's starting to have a crisis of faith and is thinking of leaving the church. So is this more of that, uh, you know, that kind of, you know, uh, look what humanity has become kind of thing?
1: Yeah, yeah, which I think again, similar to what I mentioned earlier with with Reagan, I think is important because, all in all, throughout this movie, I, I think it only t- it took me seeing it again recently, and it it took doing this podcast for me to realize that a lot of what we're given with this movie is, is a lot of at surface stuff. We don't really get a lot of deep into these characters, mm-hmm. and yeah, we see that that. Um, we see that kind of jaded behavior come out when we first um, introduced him initially. Now uh, things change throughout the story and everything, but I think it's important that we, we saw that scene first. So initially we're not thinking, oh wow, this guy's kind of an asshole. You know, like Mm -hmm. we don't initially want to assume he just doesn't like Reagan, that he just doesn't want to be here helping the situation. We have to be basically foreshadowed the fact that yeah, life is hard and that can get hard and that can you know drive down anybody even those that have been held at higher faith for many many years that you know things can wear anybody down over time yeah
0: absolutely and and in the scene that follows when he visits his mother we're going to get a little bit more of his backstory uh so he arrives at just oh god what looks like a shithole Mm -hmm. this is not a happy place to be Uh, and he goes in and it's the home of his very Greek mama and, uh, she is so happy to see him. It also looks like he used to be a boxer. There are photographs of him around, uh, you know, with his gloves on and he is kind of going through the whole, uh, process of just kind of taking care of her. She's, he's having to redress a bandage she has on her leg. He kind of cooks her dinner and, and he's, you know, he's imploring with her. He says, please, you know, i live so far away. You know, this is in New York and he's in Washington, D.C. He's like, please let me put you somewhere in a home where someone can take care of you. He can't be there every day. And, you know, it it might be a shithole, but this is her shithole and she ain't leaving. Mm -hmm. So he basically leaves her with some money and to sleep in a really uncomfortable chair. He could have at least moved her. (laughs) That's (laughs) all I'm saying. But we see that he is having this internal struggle. He wants so much to be able to help his mother. But he has this obligation to the church. They have him on assignment uh, where he can't be close to her and he can't take care of her. And he has a lot of guilt over that. Well, back at the McNeil house, Reagan has been doing some arts and crafts and shows them off. Cute little things she's making. When Chris discovers that Reagan has been playing with a Ouija board. Which is creepy. It's really creepy, especially
1: when Reagan says this is how i talked to captain howdy yeah that's a that's a, i think supposed to obviously be like a child friendly name but it's creepy to me
0: right well it's obviously the demon and he's trying to appeal to her by playing like he's something friendly mm-hmm. and fun uh but yeah that just makes it even creepier when they try and make it cutesy yeah <laughs> so uh
1: but chris she, nope, nothing wrong with that. That's perfectly fine. You you talk to Captain Howdy yeah, on, she's like, on your word board. Exactly. Yeah, she's like, oh, how fun. And Reagan's like, yeah, I do it all the time by myself. The, the damn planchette actually moves by itself. Yeah. And Chris is like,
0: oh, you don't want me to play with it. And she's
1: like, oh, no, that's Captain Howdy. I'd be like, fuck this. We're burning it. Yeah. I'd be like, Captain Howdy's got to go bye-bye. Sorry. <laughs> Captain Howdy
0: was not extended an invitation into this home. <laughs>
1: Well, Chris asks
0: if Reagan likes her friend Burke, who again, if you remember, is the director of the movie that Chris is currently in. And Reagan wants to know if Burke and Chris are ever going to get married, but Chris insists they're good friends. And and it's this interesting little back and forth where, you know, Reagan is saying, you know, I think he likes you more than just friends. Are you sure you're not going to get married and Chris, you can tell, is kind of like, uh, no, she's very insistent that it's just kind of a a friendship thing. But Mm -hmm. it's it's very odd. And you can tell that Reagan's kind of it's almost like she turns into a little, little girl when she's kind of talking about, you know, she talks smaller and she's kind of pulled herself in and she's fidgeting with her nightgown. And it's just kind of this little awkward scene about Burke. Well, next, Karis is having a cold one with another priest, and this is when we find out that he wants out of the priesthood. He is losing his faith. Well, back with Chris, she's trying to get a hold of Reagan's father. Obviously, they are uh, divorced, and he is no longer in the picture, but she's just having an argument with the operator
1: for being on hold for 20 fucking minutes. Because she's real pissed. She is livid. I gotta definitely say this is a Karen moment because I was like, "That poor operator did not do anything, and she's just being laid into."
0: <laughs> exactly. I mean, I I don't understand why you need to call an operator to reach your ex husband. And if he's not answering why, that's the operator's fault. Yeah. I mean, she doesn't arrange for the time that they're going to be home. She's like, look, well, in that case, you go to his house and go pick him up. I want (laughs) to talk to him right now. Maybe I don't understand how telephones worked in the 70s. I I didn't think they were much different than today, but... You were a baby. You didn't know. (laughs) Well, later that night, in the middle of the night, Chris gets called in to shoot a scene and has to leave. But she finds that Regan is sleeping right next to her in bed. And when she asks her why she's there, she said she couldn't sleep because her bed was shaking. And she's like super chill about it. Yeah, she's just like, my bed was shaking. So I came in here.
1: Yeah. Why why is everyone? (laughs) Nobody's giving anything a proper reaction.
0: Apparently 10 foot rats are fine. Yeah. And a little bed vibration
1: par for the course. Yeah. Yeah. It is what it is. What's going on in Georgetown that everyone's just okay with stuff? And again, we have mom who doesn't really react again. I mean, she just kind of, okay. But I mean, again, if my kid is sleeping in my bed and they they're like, my bed was shaking last night, I'd be like, we need to figure out what's going on. Because first off, my bed. Let's start there. Second, not okay that your bed shakes, okay? <laughs> we need to figure out what's going on. There needs to be some problem solved or you're moving. Look, I don't know what you kids are into these days, but we
0: are not putting magic fingers on your bed. (laughs) Take them off immediately. Mom will see you when she gets back from work. (laughs) Well, as she leaves, Chris hears more noises. It's that fucking 10-foot rat again. But this time she goes to investigate. Uh, She can see the traps have been set, but the the cheese or whatever they're using as bait uh, is still there. Well, the candle she's holding all of a sudden turns into a damn (laughs) flamethrower and shoots fire everywhere. It's like, is it the thing? (laughs) Crossover. Is there a dog we don't know about? Why are we setting it on fire? But but at the same time, the damn handyman pops up into the attic, just pops his head up and goes, well, just to let you know, there are no rats. Thanks, asshole. (laughs) Your little I told you so moment scared the shit out of me. (laughs) (laughs) he's just like yes ma'am there's no
1: rats everything seems to be going right around here Lenny. just (laughs) wanted to let you know your attic is fully haunted but no rats i'll leave my
0: bill on the counter yes ma'am i've done what i was told i have repaired the loose floorboard in the library and obviously no rats in the attic (laughs) see you tomorrow by the way, your kid's head is spinning around. Just wanted to let you know, I uh, don't know what that's about. So I do have a Phillips head, and I can tighten it if you need to. <laughs> put that on the list for tomorrow. <laughs> well, next we find out that Father Karras' mother has been institutionalized, and he goes to see her. And it, it turns out it's another family member is the one that put her in the institution, Uh, But she blames him and now he has tremendous guilt and he starts pleading, saying, Mama, I'm here. I'm going to take you out of here. I promise. But she is not having it. She thinks that he has betrayed her and has put her uh, in this home against her wishes and she is heartbroken. And now he is heartbroken as well. He feels like he couldn't save her. And it's a tough scene. You feel so bad for him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, afterwards you know, he's pleading with his family member. He says, at least couldn't it have been something somewhere nicer because she's in there with the mentally unstable. I mean, that could be dangerous for her. She's obviously not mentally ill in any way. She's just old and and finds it difficult to take care of herself. So it's, it's just, it's a tragic scene. You hate that and you know that he's heartbroken. Uh, So now we cut to Chris and she's having a big old swanky party. And even her asshole director Burke is there and he proceeds to get shit-faced drunk Mm -hmm. and he's talking about how there's some alien pubic hair in his drinking and he's never seen it before in his life all checks out he reminds me of Rowan Atkinson Mr. Bean
1: oh yeah yeah yeah
0: yeah well, oddly enough, Chris asks about Father Karras because she had seen him when she was walking home that day. When, when she passes the nuns and the uh, the kids dressed up for Halloween, she sees him in in kind of the courtyard of the church talking with another priest. And so she inquires about him. So again, here's a, another serendipitous moment. She she took notice of him, and for some reason feels very drawn to him. Uh, and when she asks about him, we find out that since his mother was put in the institution, he does get her back home and she dies just days later. So uh, you can only imagine that now his guilt is just quadrupled. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but back at Chris's, the dun- drunk director is now in the kitchen and calls the butler, who happens to be German, a Nazi. And Of course, he gets pissed and attacks the director. Well, they all realize who's to blame, and eventually Burke, the director, gets kicked out. But as the party is winding down, and only a few guests remain, and they're all standing around singing at a piano, it's kind of what I imagine every party was in the 70s. It's just how I (laughs) imagine the 70s, that everyone got together in very fancy clothes with very wide collars and sang songs around a piano.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, everybody knows the 70s was the time of fancy wear and piano songs. <laughs> well,
0: Reagan comes downstairs. This scene, for some reason, is one of the scenes that sticks out in my mind from my first viewing when I was a kid. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's a, it's a, significant scene
0: it is significant and i think it's because i am so affected by embarrassment i cannot stand to be embarrassed that the fact that she basically walks downstairs and pisses on the floor was horrifying to me it's one of the scariest things in this movie if you ask me i just i can't even imagine how embarrassing that would be i just died
1: yeah i think for for the whole party involved you can kind of see this joint feeling of embarrassment not only for themselves but for reagan for Mm -hmm. chris you know it's just a very again a very uncomfortable situation that we we are made to sit through Mm -hmm. that shows uh, again another situation where reagan's no longer in control of her own body yeah and and yeah it's done in a way that is is meant to get under your skin as the viewer as the party goer as you know reagan's mom and it's done successfully (laughs) In a very alarming way. <laughs> but I, again, I just think that that only makes this movie more effective in the ways that it is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And another thing, did you catch what she says right
1: before that? I know I noticed it last night, but now I'm blanking on what it, what she said.
0: I originally thought she said, I'm going to die up there saying, you know, kind of saying she can tell bad things are, yeah. are happening. But apparently, what she says is you're going to die up there, and she says it to one of the partygoers who walks over to her. It's just like you know, I don't remember what he says. Something like, "What are you doing up, kid?" or something mm-hmm. like that. <laughs> well, he also happens to be an astronaut. I guess that is laid out somewhere
1: during the party, and I missed it when he's wearing a space suit at <laughs> I, the party. I miss yes, I missed the helmet when he arrived on his rocket ship. <laughs> but
0: what she says she says to him you're going to die up there basically just told an
1: astronaut yep you're gonna die it's fine no biggie now I'm going to pee on the floor yeah well (laughs) just a quick FYI you're gonna die up there also I have to pee (laughs) well of course Chris has to make up an excuse
0: and says I'm so sorry she's been very sick lately and gets her upstairs and, and gives her a bath and puts her to bed and Reagan can tell that something is happening and she says what what is happening to me mom you know, what's wrong she knows that things are changing yeah and you know apparently they had a doctor come in and she said it's like the doctor said it's just nerves you're going to be fine
1: yeah i think another thing whether this movie is meant to talk about it or not that's something that happens realistically in to, in today's society as well A lot of times in teenage girls' lives, mental illness can go undiagnosed because a lot of times it's just pinpointed to puberty, to hormones, to Mm -hmm. changing emotions, and they're going through a lot, and it's depression or, you know, whatever, and can get totally bypassed because it's just blamed on a natural thing that all teenage girls go through. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, teenagers, but especially teenage girls, uh who I think doctors tend to be like, oh, they're just being over-emotional. Oh, she's just, you know, having that teenage girl hysteria Mm -hmm. or, you know, and yeah, (laughs) we all are a little bit crazy as teenage girls, we'll admit it. But, you know, when we're saying, no, there's something beyond that, please help me. And when we're not being listened to because we're just, you know, being told by doctors, psychiatrists, counselors, teachers, that it's just because we're teenagers and we're just a little bit stressed, that things only get worse and Mm -hmm. things begin to wind out of control.
0: And that is certainly what's about to start happening. Well, next we see Father Dyer. Uh, He is a member of the church that's right next to their house. He was at the party and he is bringing Father Karras a bottle of alcohol to help with the grief over the loss of his mother. You know, one of the interesting things that I found in this movie was how willing... Friedkin was to portray everyone simply as a human being. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he showed these priests in all their faults. Yeah, he showed that they smoked and they drank and they went to bars. And you know, he's walking through what I believe is a seminary that's attached to the church, where where everyone, all the priests, are there. They study. And he's walking through kind of this dormitory thing. And they, they're in there gambling and playing poker and drink. They're just, you know, they're like regular people. They just happen to be priests. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> It's just the, the rawness of it. He wasn't afraid to show the gritty realism yeah. of these people as human beings. So it seems so odd to me to be seeing this behavior from priests because usually... You know, when you see a priest in the movies, they're, you know... They're held to a higher standard. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Because that's how we think they should be. Mm -hmm. But in reality, they're simply human beings Mm -hmm. and they're flawed like every one of us. So the fact that Friedkin makes it a point to show that grittiness, that this is still a human being who is susceptible to sin and to guilt you know, they are not perfect yeah. and that he is having the struggle and I really think that did a lot to really help me empathize mm-hmm. with Carass's character. Yeah,
1: yeah. And how how quickly that line between good and evil can get blurred because it I mean, it seems like he was already on you know, towing that line of, you know, were his beliefs as strong as they used to be and then it you know it took just one instance of of a tragedy to to shake him up and and i think that's the biggest thing about this movie is is how how much does it take to shake up your faith you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and and I think that's why it's so important that they, they portrayed Karis that way because we, we are introduced to Karis, and I, I know where we're about to bring it up, but initially he's not keen towards the idea of an exorcism for Regan. Not at all. Yeah. Initially he, again, also tries to kind of blame it on, oh, I think she just needs to see a psychiatrist.
0: Because he has also been uh, educated as a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. The, the church put him through school, specifically in that field.
1: Yeah, yeah. And so I think it's important that we were we were shown humanistic flaws and, and stuff like that. Then we're more okay with that idea when it comes along down the line. Well, after Dyer leaves,
0: Karis falls asleep and has a crazy dream, uh, basically about his mother and kind of almost premonition-like mm-hmm. um, because he dreams about this St. Joseph medal, which we find that he wears a St. Joseph medal. And uh, he's dreaming, seeing his mother coming up out of the subway and he's, he's trying to call out to her and uh, she's trying to call out to him and they're just not connecting and, and she just kind of turns around and walks back down into the subway and there's nothing that he can do. And it just kind of represents, you know, it could be him thinking that possibly because he couldn't save her, maybe he's worried she's going to be descending into hell but he it's just another way to show this tremendous guilt that he has. And it's important because it's really going to come into play later on when he goes up against this demon. And it's going to use that against him. Mm-hmm. Well, Chris has taken Reagan to the doctor because obviously there, there's something more going on here than just nerves. Uh, and they think it might be something neurological. So they decide that she needs an arteriogram. And she is cussing up a storm. She does not want that shot. And her personality's really started to change now. Now we're seeing a lot more profanity. So the doctor comes out to talk to Chris and he is just smoking like a chimney. (laughs) I'll be like, you get it. You get it. Yeah, just in the middle of a hospital. Doctor smoking. No big deal. (laughs) Thank you, 70s. It just, I don't know what was going on back then. I lived it. It still could tell you nothing. (laughs) Uh, But he insists this is just a brain thing. It's no big deal. We're going to give her this test. We're going to find out what it is. We're going to fix it. Everything's going to be fine. So next, they have to give Reagan this arteriogram. And we got to talk about this scene. There's a lot going on. So first of all, when Friedkin wanted to film this, he wanted it to be as realistic as possible again to him this is not a horror movie he is telling a story of something that he truly believes happened this is supposedly based on the true story of a young boy uh, and of course they changed the gender and the name and everything to protect the innocence but supposedly this actually happened and so he is approaching this from a sense of realism and he wanted this scene where she has to take this very very invasive test To be very real. So they went to NYU Medical Center uh, where the scene was shot. And so the people that you see in the scene, because they're using the actual equipment, got cast in the film because they knew how this equipment worked, what it was supposed to look like. And so the doctor that you see is real. The x-ray technician is real. But there's something a little extra special about that x-ray technician. Yeah. So that gentleman's name is Paul Bateson, and he was an actual x-ray technician at NYU Medical Center. And in 1979, he was convicted of the murder of a film critic and was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Of course, 1979, that's several years after this movie came out. However, when he was in prison, he bragged about and was a suspect in the murders of six men whom he said he picked up in gay bars and had sex with and then murdered and dismembered their bodies and put them into plastic bags, quote-unquote, for fun in and around 1977 and 1978. They were known as the Bag Murders. This is a true story. Although investigators believed his story, he was never officially charged, and those murders have technically never been solved. Bateson was released from prison in 2004. The whole story revolving the Bag Murders were later fictionalized in a movie called Cruising in 1980, which was also directed by William Friedkin.
1: I just have so much to say (laughs) and not enough time to say it. (laughs) But I do, I, that's, a, that's a fact that I've known for a while now, and I do, I, every time I hear it, I think it's so interesting, and I, I know that even last night, like, I think both of us were keeping our eye out to, for him in that scene, because we both knew he was there. Yeah, I mean, we have a true crime podcast. Yeah. I, I
0: think we would have to give that podcast up if we didn't know the story about the serial killer. Yeah. That's in The Exorcist.
1: Yeah, yeah. And we've talked about it, I think, briefly on Creepy Caffeine, if I remember correctly. We have. And, uh... Yeah, I know I remember thinking then and and again now talking about how he got out, confessed all that and then got out. I I just have many thoughts about it. (laughs) I don't understand it. (laughs) Many questions, not enough answers. Yeah.
0: Well, again, it was just one of those things just because he said he did it. They could never find any
1: evidence that tied him, so they could never charge him. But I feel like we should be able to charge somebody for (laughs) saying those words because he shouldn't say those words if he doesn't mean them. He really shouldn't.
0: Well, of course, another interesting thing about this scene is, you know, I'm sure just about everybody has heard the stories about how people would faint in the theater watching this movie. Oddly enough, it was this scene that made the most people faint. Not anything crazy and scary in the demonic possession part, but this scene where she's getting this test because of the fact that it looks so realistic Mm -hmm. and a lot of people have a really serious phobia about medical procedures that it just freaked a lot of people out and when that blood comes spurting out of her artery when they're connecting that little uh, hose or whatever yeah. they gotta connect yeah that got to a lot of people and whoop out they went it is pretty realistic
1: looking i'll give it to them
0: well of course the results from this horrific test was there is no brain thing she there is no brain there's no brain
1: turns out she's been a zombie this surprise, whole time surprise
0: what a twist. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's, there's no tumors, there's no blood clots, there's nothing there that would in any way cause this odd behavior. Uh, even when, <laughs> you know, Chris is talking to the doctor and he says, I- I'm sorry, you know, I just, I don't know how to explain it. I'm not seeing anything. There has to be something else, you know, psychological that's going on. And it's, I really think he's trying to tell her that it's like seizures that are causing her bed to shake that it's like her that's doing it and uh chris is like well you don't understand <laughs> i literally saw the bed shake yeah. this was not seizures well back at home reagan is having more of those seizures <laughs> it's, uh she's at, so wacky <laughs> that girl just wants attention but when she, when chris walks in it's oh god it's the moment when uh linda blair is it's kind of like she's she's sitting up and Laying down and sitting up very yeah. forcibly. Yeah. This is the scene when Linda Blair actually really severely injures her back. Yeah. And so the flailing and, and the screaming that's coming at this point, that was very real. She unfortunately got very hurt and has had permanent damage to her back since then. Uh, but it is super effective. I mean, it looks in. Tense. yes Uh, this whole scene there is a lot going on i mean we have her flailing around and doctors come running in and chris comes running in and she's slapping the doctors and uh, some unseen force slaps reagan and the bed is shaken and there is a lot Mm -hmm. going on but when all is said and done the doctors still think it's a brain thing so it's exactly what you're talking about so of course all the doctors can do is insist that they do more tests And that's what they do. And on one night, Chris gets home from the hospital after talking to the doctors and they're explaining that they still don't know what's wrong with her. She goes in the house and it seems very quiet. And she's walking around and she's calling for people and no one's answering. And the lights keep flickering on and off. And she goes up to Reagan's room and it again is freezing cold inside. Mm -hmm. And uh, she closes the window and covers her up. But let's talk about that set. Uh, again, like on The Thing, they use refrigerated sets. And it was cooled down to like 30 degrees. It was so cold that perspiration would freeze on some of the cast and crew. And on one occasion, the air was saturated with moisture, resulting in a thin layer of snow That fell on the set before the crew arrived for filming.
1: Oh my gosh. Can you imagine? That's crazy. It's very effective though. When those cold scenes, when they walk in and you can see their breath. Yeah. And And that was the whole point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, But to
0: this day, Linda Blair said uh, she... Absolutely cannot stand being cold yeah she spent so much time if you think about she's just in this flimsy little nightgown Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and has to be in these freezing cold temperatures sometimes for hours at a time now i'm sure she didn't have to be in it as long as the adults because of you know child labor laws but still yeah she says she cannot stand being cold yeah
1: yeah i don't blame her because not only is she in the cold but there's also so much stuff happening to her body i mean obviously like that that scene with her being thrashed around and everything mm-hmm. that's a lot on your body with being cold so yeah i can imagine it's just not good <laughs> not good on the body after a long period of time well chris makes her way back downstairs
0: just as her assistant arrives back home and chris is pissed because that means reagan was left alone but the assistant says no 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 when i left burke was here we all remember the asshole director Burke, mm-hmm. but Burke's not there now, and it turns out Burke is dead, and I think we all know who did it.
1: It was Reagan.
0: So, a psychologist comes to hypnotize Reagan because, again, Chris is just getting she's trying anything, uh, and so he hypnotizes her and whoever is inside of her, but Reagan would just rather attack him and puts a death grip on. On the poor man's balls. Yeah. I mean, I I hope he already had children because he won't be having any after this. Yeah. Yeah. She got a, she got a grip for days. I'm pretty sure they both popped. (laughs) Is that a thing? It seems like that's a thing and it'd be very painful. And I feel like this would be an instance when that would happen. Yeah. I just, it made me cross my legs. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I, one of those things that your whole body tenses up and you're like,
0: ooh, (laughs) So apparently the uh, psychology route isn't really helping either. She's not a fan of it. <laughs> she wants to try something new. Well, next we meet homicide detective Lieutenant Kinderman, and he has come to consult with Father Karras because when they found Burke at the bottom of the stairs, um, his head was spun around 180 degrees. Yeah. So he
1: suspects possibly something otherworldly might be to blame. Which seems weird because I immediately was like, oh, natural causes. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just the other day, I spun my head around. (laughs) Yeah. Well,
0: anyway, at this point, doctors still don't know what's going on with Reagan, and she now has 88 doctors working on her case. I don't know if she's exaggerating or if that's literally she has 88 doctors working on a case, but apparently she's become like an episode of House. They've brought in people to try and figure out what this mystery disease is. And they're at the point where they're like, look, we don't know what it is, but this behavior's not getting any better and we want to institutionalize her. And Chris refuses. Mm-hmm. She says, you're not locking my daughter up. So one of the doctors, he actually says, well, look, there's one other thing we haven't tried and it could actually cure her. And he says, have you ever heard of an exorcism? And so the theory that the doctor has is that if Chris and Reagan are religious and they have grown up in a culture that believes in demons and believes in exorcism and those things are important concepts to them, then just the simple act of going through an exorcism could psychologically cure her. Kind of like a psychosomatic effect, or mm-hmm. when you give someone a placebo. Yeah. They think something's happening to them that's supposed to be helping them. Therefore, mentally, they heal themselves.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, in the next scene, we see Kinderman again, and he is back examining the crime scene. He's at the bottom of those famous stairs, and he finds a little bit of treasure. <laughs> uh, it's uh, it's actually the little statue that Marin had found.
1: I don't know how he sees it.
0: I don't either. It's it's really hidden under uh, a lot of debris, leaves and stuff. Yeah.
1: He's the professional. <laughs> he's got those eyes.
0: <laughs> he he's... can see stuff. He is Batman. It's, we don't know that. If you read the book, you'd know he's definitely Batman.
1: <laughs> Checks out. That's why <laughs> there's a sequel. We got to explain that. I get it.
0: Well... Back in the McNeil house, someone has put a crucifix under Reagan's pillow, but everyone in the house denies doing it. Next, we flash back to Kinderman, who's still at those stairs, and now he's climbing the stairs, which leads him right to Chris McNeil's door. And he doesn't think Burke fell. So he starts to very politely interrogate Chris I mean he has a very sly interrogation style he reminds me very much of Inspector Perot he's almost too smart and it's it's almost like he's toying with her Mm -hmm. Uh, but he's very slyly letting her know that he believes that Reagan did this without actually saying I believe your daughter killed this man. Yeah. Um, He's asking her things like, was anyone else in the house beside Reagan? And he gives her like 20 different outs for that question. He's like, are there any friends of the servants? Were there any delivery drivers? Is it Avon calling? Was it Jehovah's Witness? We'd like to talk to you about your car's extended warranty. I mean, he just keeps going on and on going (laughs) anytime now you could say that this is this one. And she's not. It's like, Yeah, say someone else could have been there. And then right, it's really tense. You can tell that she just wants him to leave. And she herself, I think, is really starting to come to terms with the fact she has to admit, she knows it, that Reagan is the one who killed Burke. And it's not stated in the movie. It's kind of implied in a few things that are said here and there. But it, it's gone into more depth in the book. But in fact, it is revealed that Burke was molesting Reagan. So, yeah, she killed him and he fucking deserved it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That I, I definitely wish that that was better explained in the movie. Mm-hmm. Just because I think that would definitely correlate. And I think even possibly explain maybe a triggering event that could cause her to be in a vulnerable state for this possession to occur like it, mm-hmm. it would it would kind of plant more evidence plant more seeds to explain right
0: yeah absolutely it, it could explain why she turned to this Ouija board you know this acting out this kind of odd behavior and stuff and yeah absolutely I I, I think it should have definitely been more implied in the film mm-hmm. as Kinderman is finally getting ready to leave much to Chris's relief he slightly asks if she could ask Reagan if she remembers Burke being in that room. Did did she see him that night? Oh, and by the way, could he go ahead and get an autograph because he's a big movie buff, you know. <laughs> yeah. I just I just thought that was such a great Scene showing I, I just really enjoyed the Kinderman character I I just thought he was fun again he reminds me so much of a Perot or or a Columbo just kind of really polite but actually <laughs> kind of digging it to you you don't know it and the fact that he again pushes this really uncomfortable question of you know could you go ahead and ask if she saw Burke in the room because I still think your daughter is a terrible murderer. Yeah. But can I go ahead and get that autograph? You know, just diffuses the situation. And you can actually see, you know, Ellen Burstyn played it as, oh, because she immediately relaxes and she goes into actress mode. And it's like, oh, yeah, I can give you. So it it, it just really endeared him toward me. Uh, I don't know why. Uh, but I enjoyed their interaction.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think it is, you know, outside of just their interaction you know as a viewer if they're just watching it at face value it's a nice moment where we get just a a a little moment of relief in a chaotic time
0: exactly and uh we need it we need a moment of relief because what comes next is not good it is it's not good uh because our our next scene is uh it's probably the most intense scene in this movie and It is the reason why I say this is an uncomfortable movie.
1: Yeah, I think even outside of this movie, I know this is touted as one of the more controversial scenes in in, in any movie. Yeah, it is. uh, it's, It's intense. And
0: if you haven't seen the film and are unaware what we're talking about, this is a scene when basically at this point, Reagan is completely gone. The demon has taken her over completely. And she is masturbating with a crucifix uh it's also very violent yeah uh there is blood involved and believe it or not uh the scene in the novel is supposed to be much worse Uh, the movie was greatly toned down uh in the book uh, the scene is way longer it's gorier and very sexually explicit with reagan suffering a broken nose and there is butchery of her genitals and she reaches climax. Oh so it, yeah, it's, it's far more intense in the book, but still here it it is not, it doesn't last very long. It's very short. In fact, in the version that we saw, it, it's over very quickly. In the 2000 version, some footage was added in that is a lot more graphic in nature. I saw it when I was watching the documentary, uh, so it depending again on the version that you see, it, believe it or not, this scene can get a little worse. So it it's it's intense.
1: Yeah, this scene is is interesting because especially the the version that we watched last night, it is done so quickly, and I I think it's one of those scenes that because us as the viewer, especially now many many years later, we all know the scenes coming up, we all know it's occurring. So I think we all in our head immediately. Prepare for the worst. And so because because of that, we're automatically expecting that it's going to be a really m- mentally tough, uncomfortable scene. And it is. But I think it's interesting. And, and maybe it's because the book. You know, the book obviously portrays it in a sexual manner. But the movie could have almost gotten away with not because it is done so aggressively and because there is so much blood occurring Mm -hmm. and because the scene happens so fast it almost to to a viewer just looks like plain stabbing yeah and and uh which is
0: basically what it becomes yeah yeah
1: it's, it's violent yeah absolutely uh but again it's uh I think in the movie done far less in a sexual way. Mm-hmm. I, so I think at least we, like you said, thankfully get a little bit of reprieve uh, in that aspect when it comes to the movie, it's still uncomfortable and it's still very uh, kind of bone chilling to watch, but it, and and even the sounds, the sounds are a little rough oh, yeah, in that yeah. scene as well. But uh, I I, th- I do think it's done in a way where it's it's done very quickly and it gets the point across and then we don't linger on it. And could the movie have been done without it? Absolutely. But if you want to follow along with the book, then it had to be there. so
0: Yeah, I, I think, it, it, you know, the point of trying to make people understand that this is true evil, the best way to convince them is to show an innocent child doing truly evil horrific things yeah yeah and it's it gets the point across mm-hmm. i get it it's evil yeah and chris is about to get it too because reagan even pulls her in and it's as another pretty intense moment but then right after that reagan slaps her mother mm-hmm. and this is the scene when ellen burston was severely injured in the sequence where she's thrown away from Reagan as she slaps her. Yeah. But it's supposed to look like, I mean, like Reagan has unusually. Like super strength. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And so when she hits her, it's supposed to look like her mother actually flies across the room mm-hmm. and uh, lands against the wall. So Ellen Burstyn was hooked up to a harness in that scene. And so when Reagan slaps her, this harness jerks back and is supposed to pull her very quickly away from the bed. And when she fell backwards, she landed on part of that, uh, harness and she fell right on her coccyx. And when you see her reaction and she, that scream of pain on her face, hundred mm-hmm. percent real. Yeah. It, it was, it was bad.
1: Yeah. I've always, I've known that she truly got injured and I didn't know to what extent or, or how the injury really occurred, but. Uh yeah, so I know last night when I was watching it, uh, that was something that I was keen to was you know the fact that her reactions were real, and I think knowing that makes the react you know viewers' reaction even worse. At least for me personally, because knowing how she really was hurt immediately like made me again kind of tense my body, and react because I knew her you know she was going to be feeling pain in a second, and uh, this obviously is done. Well, because it's real,
0: yeah, well, this is kind of the the last straw for Chris, and I, I don't think anyone could blame her at this point. And she finally decides to meet with Father Karis and she just <laughs> she just kind of blurts out and and asks her, you know,, uh, by the way, what if someone might be possessed? what 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 how would that work? asking for a friend and he's like what what are you talking about what an exorcism he's like people don't
1: just do that anymore he's like you got to go back to the 1600s you can't just make exorcisms happen anymore chris <laughs> there are rules <laughs> and
0: of course he says plus he can't even do it without the church's approval you, you can't willy-nilly walk in and do an exorcism he could see her as a psychologist and, and that is the absolute wrong answer. She flips out and she's like, you know, we've seen psychologists. It doesn't work. The doctors tell me to go see a priest and now you're telling me to go see the doctors. It's just, I keep going in circles. Who is going to help me? And so finally he agrees to come. And uh, when they get there, this is, this was just an unset. I did not remember this scene, but when they arrive, the handyman is outside the door with a chair, holding it kind of like a lion tamer would, Uh you know, with that chair out in front of him. And he says, it wants no straps.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I
0: just thought that was so chilling. It's like, nothing says to me more that there is something horrible behind that door than this little old man with a chair going, it wants no straps, meaning, please don't make me go in there. Mm -hmm. It's fighting me today. It was it It was super effective mm-hmm. in getting the point across that things have just continued to get worse. Mm-hmm. Well, they finally enter the room and Reagan is not looking
1: well. Yeah, things have gone downhill very quickly.
0: Yes, yeah, some some shit has happened. she She now kind of has these open wounds all over her face and uh, skin has grayed a little bit and there's reddening around her eyes and here's where we get a tie back to the homeless man that was in the subway because she mimics his voice and you know basically asks kind of the same question that he did and he I don't know if he doesn't catch it or just chooses to ignore it because remember he's skeptical right now yeah he doesn't think there's actually someone who's possessed here so he he's kind of toying with it going oh yeah really and so he says so if you're all-knowing then what's my mother's maiden name and bing bang boo he gets puke in the eye
1: yeah it seems like a intense reaction to a question i was gonna say how do you pronounce that (laughs) can you spell that for me
0: is that first or last (laughs) Uh, but here's uh, oh this was another one of Friedkin's tricks, and Jason Miller who who played Caris was pissed. Uh, so the rig that was set up that was supposed to shoot out that green pea soup, everyone knows that's just green pea soup at this point. But the, the rig that was set up, it was supposed to hit him in the chest, and they set it wrong, and it went off and hit him right in the face and it got in his eyes and in his mouth and he was pissed apparently he just went off he was so angry but like Friedkin said he loves that spontaneity and that unexpected and he thought it was great and that's what ended up in the film
1: yeah it's a very effective scene I know that at at this point in in the movie when we when we really begin to see Reagan's makeup in full effect um, I think for me is the time when the movie picks up for me mm-hmm. uh, because obviously we're, we're getting into the the peak of things where where she's obviously fully gone. She's being able to manipulate people by pretending to be other people. And she's, she's able to find people's weak points and, and you know, be able to basically break people down and, or slash kill them. Um, and so I know that the first time that I watched this scene all, all of this, this whole base, well, this whole basic second half of the movie was just so damn effective and mm-hmm. was so well done. Uh, the makeup, you know, the wounds and everything. But even this pea soup scene, it's one of those scenes that I've seen multiple times, but it never matters. It never gets old. It's so effective, and I think because a, it's so, uh, it's just not a pleasant texture. We'll start there. It's not <laughs> a great color. It's just so. It's such a human action of puking, but it's done in a way where it's intensified and it's it's made more disgusting looking by the color. It's that projectile vomit. Mm-hmm. And there's so much of it. Yeah. And that's the thing is it's there's so much. It's like frothy. And then you have to put yourself in, in Keras' shoes where now you've just had all this into your eye and in your mouth. And it's such an effective scene of showing again she's not in control but basically what is in control just doesn't give a fuck like it's not there to play nice it's not there to take care of reagan in any aspect Uh and and it's in full effect of showing the capabilities that we begin to see in this movie as far as the special effects and the makeup and i think it's a really good peak point in the movie where that picks up and we get to turn on that switch
0: well we are definitely on that downhill slide but before he leaves, he asks Chris if Reagan knew that his mother had died. And the reason why he asks is because when he was interacting with Reagan, she brought it up. And of course, Chris said, "No, there's no reason. She doesn't even know you." So, you know, at that moment,
1: he believes. He knows. Yeah, he's he's going beyond the line of skepticism at this point. He's beginning to fully go in and be like, "Oh, no, this is actually Way more weird than I thought it was. <laughs> yeah,
0: but he's going to need some sort of proof to give to the church, because even though he knows, he still can't do the exorcism without permission from the church, so he's going to have to go back. Uh, but first we see him, he's taking communion in preparation, but all that preparation, unfortunately, <laughs> ooh, he is vastly unprepared for what's about to come.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't know what kind of preparation you could come with really well i'll tell you who is prepared and that's bazuzu uh so
0: kara shows back up in reagan's bedroom and the first thing she says to him is what a beautiful day for an exorcism
1: i kind of want that tattooed on myself (laughs) (laughs) why does that sound exactly like something you would do because the moment I heard it, I even wrote it down in my notes. I like put it in quotations, and I was like, "Need this tattooed on my body." <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, Father Karis asks why,
0: and Reagan answers that it will bring them closer together. And Karis says, "You mean you and Reagan?" And she says, "No, me and you." So you're starting to realize that this is now not about Reagan. We don't even know if it was ever really about Reagan. This has been about Karis. He wants Karis.
1: Yeah, I think it's done well throughout this movie, leaving breadcrumbs up into this point to show us that Karis is a constant kind of towing the line and now questioning things and now fully kind of shutting that door. So yeah, I think absolutely now we're met with that that moment to see that everything's falling into place and it's, it's meant for Caris only,
0: so Reagan does a little magic trick and opens up a drawer on a nightstand. Uh, she she also speaks a little Latin and a little French.
1: So karis returns the favor
0: with a little holy water.
1: <laughs> Seems like a weird reaction <laughs> to her showing off that she has multiple
0: languages. Uh, yeah, because Reagan claims that it burns. Uh, Then she says a whole bunch of stuff in a language that nobody understands. But Karis, he's recording the whole thing. So speaking of languages and voices, let's take a second to talk about Reagan's voice right now because a lot of people don't know that's not Linda Blair. And there's a really interesting story about the actress who came in to do the voice. So actress Mercedes McCambridge, who provided the voice of the demon, insisted on swallowing raw eggs and chain smoking to alter her vocalizations. The actress, who had had problems with alcohol abuse in the past, furthermore wanted to drink whiskey as she knew alcohol would distort her voice even more and create the crazed state of mind for the character. As she was apparently going to give up sobriety for this role. She insisted that her priest be present to counsel her during the recording process.
1: That's very interesting. That's a lot of dedication.
0: That is crazy dedication, but wait, <laughs> she kicks it up to the next level. There's more. There's more. So McCambridge even asked Friedkin to bind her, tie her up to a chair And she insisted in being, she was kind of like kneeling on her knees in the chair. So it would be really uncomfortable. So she would actually experience pain Mm -hmm. while she was doing these voiceovers. And she was bound at her neck, her arms, her wrists, and her legs, and her feet. So there would be like a more realistic sound of the demon actually struggling against restraints. It it was a super intense performance, and it even scared freaking a little bit. He he said it terrified him. Uh, the the links that she went to, uh, and there actually when Linda Blair got nominated for her performance, there was some controversy because Mercedes McCambridge was not credited for coming in and doing that dialogue. And so she could never, according to the rules, if you're not credited, you can't be considered for your performance. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people were saying that a good portion of Blair's performance was actually done by Mercedes McCambridge. So should Linda Blair even have been eligible uh, to be nominated for an Academy Award? And I say, hell yes, she should have. Yeah, it might have been Mercedes McCambridge's voice. And yes, she absolutely should have been credited, which she has been. They have gone back and she does now have credit. Mm-hmm. But she had to sue them to get her credit. But it's still, it all originally was recorded with Linda Blair's voice. And it is 100% her physical body performance there yeah. going through this. So absolutely she should have been considered.
1: Yeah, yeah, I have to agree. And and I think I think you can have, you can agree and give credit to Linda Blair but at the same time fully appreciate all the absolute wild dedication that went into wanting to make that voice effective because it's done really well. Uh, it's done incredibly well yeah the voice is very creepy the laugh is very creepy I know again going back to the first time I watched it it was one of those things that looped in my head and I hated it Mm -hmm. I hated it so it's 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 effective it's one of those things that uh, you know if you hear a sample track of it or something like that you can pretty much immediately trace to the movie and it sends shivers up your spine it's just it's done really well
0: so he takes the tape that he made of their little session there and he takes it to a language expert and he says the language that Reagan is speaking is English only it's backwards and I hate it. I hate it so much. <laughs> I, I've mentioned before, I don't know on this podcast, I, I know we've talked before about how much I hate like whispering sounds. Yeah. Like whispered conversations when it's like, I hate it. Yeah, I hate it. I Just doing that. I have uh, goosebumps down my arms and my neck is like freaking (laughs) out. I I don't like it. It, It's kind of the same when I hear uh, something played backwards. That. Mm, Yeah. uh, Oh, I don't, I don't like it. It's just my brain perceives it as unnatural. Yeah. And it just gives me
1: the heebie jeebies. Yeah. Well, I think I, I don't think you're alone in that. I think that's why, again, that's used and why it's so effective. I know that. (laughs) you know there's this weird period in the early 2000s where the internet was just fucking weird and uh (laughs) you mean was i mean it's weird now but it it was just a fucking wild. it was a it was its own entity there in the early 2000s but but in saying that uh, around around that time i was like middle school and uh you know junior high and me and my friend stacy would listen i don't know why i don't fucking know why we would do it but we'd get on youtube or uh at the time there was a site called E-Bombs world um uh we would get on there and listen to these creepy ass tracks of things backwards and people trying to just to like decipher what they said and they it would scare the shit out of us It scared the absolute shit out of us. And I don't know why we would torture ourselves with it, but we would. And so every, yeah, every time I hear those, it immediately reminds me of this movie because that was the first time that I experienced that and immediately was like, oh, I don't know what that is, but I'm uncomfortable with it. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: of course they have to play the tape backwards so they can hear what's actually being said. And basically she just says a bunch of creep things, a lot of cussing, a lot of threatening, and then you hear her call out Father Marin. So here, it we set him up at the very beginning of the film, and it's taken over an hour to get back <laughs> to bring in Father Marin. Yeah, but it's done and very creepily. Well, Karis gets called back over to Chris's house because Reagan has discovered texting. Uh, and the words, help me, just kind of appear on her stomach. They didn't have cell phones, so she didn't have anywhere to put it. That makes sense. I have a message. I'll he, I'll put it on my stomach. <laughs> but basically, w- what's happening is Reagan is literally trapped inside her own body. Yeah, and the only way that she can communicate with Karis is to write out the words on her own physical flesh, uh, and it's a really creepy, effective scene where it actually looks like
1: something is carving her from the inside yeah you can see like the skin is raised it's very very creepy looking and i like how it does it in a kind of a slow way like you kind of watch it form and then the camera pans away and then it, when it comes back it, it's more prevalent but i like that it doesn't just like flash to it being there like we kind of get to see it manifest yeah yeah
0: it's a it's another fantastic practical effect hmm well, that's it. There's there's the evidence he needs. He has a a tape when played backwards, calls out Father Marin, and he literally sees words carved into this girl's abdomen. Uh, and he goes to whoever you go to in the church with these matters. I, I, I apologize, <laughs> I There's just, there's a lot of ring kissing. I I'm not Catholic. I don't know how, I don't know what the rules are. They got to give the thumbs up. That's right. But Karis leaves, and uh, they decide that definitely something needs to be done. Uh, but Karis is is too green. He's too young. He's not experienced enough. And this is where Father Marin comes in. Uh, and that is because not only do they realize he's been called out on the tape, but they want that experience then. Yeah, Marin's more seasoned. He, definitely. And he arrives just... In the most spectacular way. Just the, it's it. It's the movie. It can be summed up in this moment. And it's the moment when Father Marin arrives at the house in a taxi cab and he pulls up and it's foggy. And there's uh, just this one street lamp lit. And he gets out and light is coming from Reagan's bedroom window and is shining down onto the street, onto Father Marin and it's spectacular. Yeah, it is it's a beautiful shot. Well, as he comes inside, he's he's greeting everyone, he's introducing himself, they're introducing themselves to him. <laughs> and Reagan upstairs just starts screaming his name. And <laughs> immediately Marin starts giving a uh grocery list of things. Uh basically he's sending Karas on a supply run he's saying I I need you to get me the purple sash and I'm gonna need holy water and I will need this incense and Karas is like hang on don't you want to know the background of the story and Father Marin's like why (laughs) obviously I mean this girl's been screaming his name and obscenity since he walked in the door he's like I was called in I already have pretty good evidence that something's going on Let's just get started, shall we? <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and trust my gut on this one. So, yeah. You go ahead. <laughs> so, in the next shot, it's basically our superheroes suiting up. It's kind of like what you would see in, in a Marvel movie when duh. it's time to go to duh, battle. Duh, duh,
1: duh. <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> yeah. Duh, duh, duh. This is our montage. And Marin's laying out some ground rules. And he's just like, don't have conversations. Don't look it in the eye. The demon is a liar. It will attack you psychologically. And it's just saying... Don't interact with it. Just shut up. Do what you're supposed to do and it will it will be fine. And now it's time to go to work. But this demon ain't fucking around. I mean, very first thing to come out of her mouth when they walk in the room is stick your cock up her ass. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Immediately, no filter, no, no fucks, just goes all in with the profanities.
0: Well, of course, Max von Sidau is classically trained and was very much a gentleman. And he said he was so disturbed by hearing these things come from little Linda Blair's mouth that he actually forgot his lines. He'd be like, uh, uh, uh.
1: <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. It's very shocking.
0: Well, and, and that's what makes it so effective. I, I think his reaction kind of speaks for the audience. You know, it's just like, whoa, that's, uh, I, I am not comfortable with what's going on right now.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's just outside of our norm of what we think this innocent child should be talking like.
0: All right. And a lot is about to happen, but I'm going to lay it out for you as much as I can. So here we go. They begin praying, and Reagan is fighting, and the bed starts shaking, and holy water is flying, and the bed is levitating, and there's more cursing, and then there's a Gene Simmons tongue flicking, and then there's pea soup oozing, and then the cabinet doors are slamming, and curtains are flying, and demons are laughing, and Marin's coffin, and heads are spinning, and the room is shaking, and sheets are flying, and restraints are ripping, and Reagan is levitating up to the air, and the power of Christ compels you. Fourteen times they say it. The power of Christ compels you. And she slowly comes back down. But all of that happens over the course of probably about two, three minutes of film time at most. Mm -hmm. And it is chaotic. And it is gripping. And it is terrifying and shocking. And it it is a lot to take in. And just the conviction they have is they just keep screaming it and screaming it. And it's like it's calming everything down and she slowly comes back down onto the bed
1: it's very reminiscent of puberty it's like everybody everybody goes through that during puberty
0: your puberty was different than mine
1: (laughs) well the doctors just kept saying it was puberty she was fine she was just a little bit stressed so all of this just seems like puberty this is what you were
0: talking from your point of view (laughs) I thought we were going to have to have another discussion after the podcast was No, over. no, no,
1: no. Just according to her doctors. Ah, yes. I think this is what they show, should show in schools when it comes to the <laughs> puberty <body's> talk. My body's changing.
0: <laughs> is that hair down there? <laughs> well, Karis gets her back in her restraints, but just around her wrist, she's not actually tied down to the bed, and therefore, she's able to sit up and punch the shit out of Karis's back. I, and it just like slams him to the ground. And all of a sudden, the room starts shaking, and Reagan hits this motherfucking rock star pose with this glorious backlighting. And we see Pazuzu standing behind her. That the same statue that Marin saw in the desert is now right behind. Reagan, if I can even describe this pose she's on her knees on the bed but her head's flown back and her arms up in the air yeah it really looks like it should be on the cover of an 80s hairband album yeah. it is glorious it really is but of course Reagan's not completely free yet and it's just kind of like <laughs> that's the end of round one and uh our priests leave the room to catch their breath there's this beautiful moment where they're both uh, sitting on the stairs and and they're able to sit opposite sides of each other. And and it's this interesting juxtaposition of out with the old, in with the new kind of uh, that Marin's character, you know, he's. He's not meant for this fight. We know that he is already at death's door. He's having to take these this heart medication, and he is not prepared to do what it's going to take to defeat this demon, and it's going to be up to uh, the new coming in to, for Karis. And so there's this great shot that Freakin does where Karis, where in, a, in a very tight close-up, as they're sitting on the stairs and then you can see Marin in the background sitting on the other stairs. And it, it's just a, a nice kind of uh, visually changing of the guards as it goes back and forth as, as they have a conversation. I just thought it was very well done.
1: Yeah, I agree. I really like um, how they were able to show with Marin as well, you know, before we already have these scenes showing that he's kind of, you know, later on in life, his body shutting down and stuff like that. But even during the exorcism itself, we can see the different physical reactions between him and Reagan, and how they deal with them physically. Karis is able to kind of jump up a little bit quicker. He's able to react a little bit faster, um, whereas Marin really comes out of the fight looking like he just had a fight. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I like that we are able to see... The differences where you have this physically tired man versus this mentally tired man, and they're kind of having to balance each other out to create hopefully the perfect power to be able to push out the darkness.
0: Yeah, I I absolutely love what you just said about Marin being the physically tired man and Karis being the mentally tired man. I I think that so distinctly represents their characters their personalities in, in in it's spot on well said thanks well just in case you didn't get this subtext in the previous scene in the next scene we see Marin and he excuses himself into the restroom because he recognizes he is having a problem he's having to take his heart medication this is not a good sign uh because this fight is not over yet As Marin is in the restroom, Karis goes back inside to check on Regan, but she appears to him as his mother. So now it's time for the demon to prey on Karis' ultimate weakness, and that is the guilt over his mother's death. But Karis knows that this isn't her, and he goes ahead and examines Regan, and he can tell that her heart is giving out. This is too much on her poor little 12-year-old body. And if they're not able to remove this demon, she's going to die. So Marin joins Karis and Reagan continues to taunt Karis, you know, saying things that his mother would say and even starts mimicking her voice and sounding like her. And Karis is getting upset and yelling and saying, I know you're not my mother. And Marin says, you know, get out of here. He has you in a moment of weakness. He's preying on your guilt so, Marin sends him from the room. After Karis leaves the room, Marin begins his work and he begins to pray again over Reagan, and it gets more intense. And as he's praying, we cut to Karis, who's gone downstairs, and Chris asks him if Reagan is going to die. And it's almost like her asking that seals his conviction. He knows that it's now or never. If if he has any hope of saving Reagan, he's going to have to act now. And and he, he assures her. He says, no, she's not going to die. And he heads back upstairs.
1: I think he also uses this as an opportunity to attempt to save himself, too. Because he's so lost after losing his mom. I think he feels that this is maybe a moment of redemption. Uh, a moment where he can, you know get over that guilt you know that whole like you must lose a life to gain another one I think maybe he kind of feels like if he can just save this last girl if he can just do this one last redeeming quality regardless of whatever happens here on out you know with his faith or his career or whatever he'll be okay you know what I mean
0: yeah I I actually think it it goes a, a little bit deeper than that I actually think this is the moment when he resolves his crisis of faith. I think this is definitely when his faith returns because in his crisis of faith, it's, it's basically, is humanity worth saving? What is it all really for?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And he has to try and find that spark, that thing that shows him that yes, indeed there is good in the world and humanity is worth saving and so in that moment, he says, "You know, this little girl is worth saving. Mm-hmm. So Father Karis heads back upstairs for the fight of his life. and as soon as he enters the room, he finds that Marin is dead. He has died of a heart attack. and this this sets Karis over the edge and he grabs Reagan and throws her onto the ground and starts punching the shit out of her. I didn't remember that from when I watched it as a kid (laughs) that he just punched his 12 year old girl. I was like, Oh my God. (laughs) It seems like that shouldn't be a normal practice in exorcism. It really shouldn't. But uh, you know, I think at that point it's not that he's punching a little girl. He is taunting bazuzu the demon because he actually starts yelling get in me or let me take it or something like that it's something to the effect of you know i'm i'm willing to let you you know enter my body basically Mm -hmm. and so there's this huge struggle physically going on uh between Karis and reagan and just after he says that, that, you know, get in me, Reagan reaches up. And I honestly believe that this is Reagan herself at that moment, because I believe that Pazuzu could not enter Karis while he was still wearing a religious medal of protection. You know, yeah. he's wearing this St. Joseph medal just like the metal that was seen in his dream and just like the St. Joseph metal that was found at the archeological dig at the beginning of this movie. And so in that moment, Reagan reaches up and she pulls it off of him. And that is the exact moment when the change happens, when the demon leaves Reagan and enters father Mm caris he he physically starts to struggle because immediately he almost starts to attack reagan and Mm -hmm. starts to to choke her but he's able to kind of fight it and he knows the only way to get rid of it is he's gonna have to sacrifice his life yeah and he has to fight with all of his being but he makes the decision and he jumps out the window and ends up at the bottom of those stairs and as he lands, of course, a crowd gathers very quickly, and within that crowd is Father Karras' friend, Father Dyer, and he comes over, rushes over to his side, and actually administers last rites, and it's it's actually, it's a very, very emotional scene, uh, especially when uh, father caris kind of reaches out to his friend dyer has come over and has grabbed his hand and you just kind of see his hand shaking and, and when you realize he's actually still alive mm-hmm. it's like oh god this
1: is horrible
0: yeah you know he's suffering terribly and it's 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 a very intense moment now of course in the midst of all this at some point kinderman uh, the detective homicide detective has come back to the house at the most inopportune time while all this is going on, but he arrives upstairs in the bedroom right after everything has happened. So all he sees is the aftermath. So he arrives in Reagan's bed- bedroom, who is now Reagan again. She is sobbing in the corner and yelling for her mother who comes in and comforts her. And then you've got a dead priest on the floor and one at the bottom of the stairs outside I mean, as a homicide detective, what is going through your mind right now?
1: That this party got out of hand. <laughs> this was not your average BYOB. This was far more than a nanny. <laughs> this was a hootenanny holler, and
0: I was not impressed. By God, this is full-on shindig. <laughs> well... Whatever he's thinking, we know he doesn't end up pressing charges because in our final scene, we see the house is all packed up and Chris and Reagan are moving. Father Dyer stops by and Chris tells him Reagan doesn't remember anything. Yet when Reagan meets him and she looks at his collar, realizing that he is a man of the cloth, she gives him like a big hug and kiss, almost like... To say thank you. Yeah. Well, as their car is pulling away, Chris stops and gives Dyer Karras' Medal of St. Joseph, the one that Reagan pulled off. Dyer then walks over to those famous exorcist stairs. P- you know, people should just stay away from those damn stairs because bodies are flying onto them all the time. They really seem unsafe at this point. It, put, I mean, put a covering on it or something. I don't know. Uh, but we can see the window upstairs is now boarded up and he just longingly looks down the stairs where his friend died it's sad it's just a sad little moment and that's how it ends that is how it ends but you realize that good one they i mean <laughs> yay our heroes are dead but we won and and i mean that's it where do we go from here that's that's how it ended and you
1: I think initially right afterwards, I felt like you were a little deflated. Uh, I don't know if I was deflated per se. I think, you know, to get into the thick of it as far as reactions, of course, like I said, I, I, I've i seen it before, you've seen it before, and then... Going back to our episodes of Creepy Caffeine that you mentioned where we talked about our favorite horror movies, this was on my list and it's there for a reason and it's because truly as a kid, the very first time I saw this movie, it scared the shit out of me. It's honestly one of the, if not the only movie that I can think of off the top of my head that's genuinely scared the crap out of me, given me nightmares, like made me not want to be able to, you know, not want to sleep alone and really affected me for multiple days afterwards. It's the only movie. But every time when I watch it as an adult or later on in life, I just—I guess I'm a little bit disappointed in it because I really don't like it. Otherwise, it's an okay movie. I can appreciate it for what it is, and I can appreciate it for what it did in to the horror horror genre and everything like that. But for me, I always leave it a little bit like, eh, okay. And I think that's maybe because I don't know, maybe because it doesn't scare me anymore. Yeah, I I think that's the problem. I think you kind of had the
0: same reaction as I did. Because I have not seen this again since I was a little kid. Yeah. I thought I had. But the whole time I was like, I don't remember any of this. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what it is, is that because I'm the same way as you. After I I saw this movie again, this was another movie that my aunt had showed me. uh, And I was about 13, 14 years old, except for... Masturbation scene. She wouldn't let me watch it. She fast forwarded past it. So she did have a line that (laughs) could not be crossed. But after seeing it, I remember the thought of Linda Blair in full makeup when she was full on with the cuts on her face and the contacts. That vision for weeks after I saw this movie, when I would go to take a shower. I hated closing my eyes when I rinsed my hair because I just, I convinced myself in my head when I opened my eyes, she would be standing there right in front of me, full makeup, and it was going to scare the shit out of me. So I would try as hard as I could to wash my hair without getting soap in my eyes because it terrified me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what I was wanting when I watched it again. Chasing that high. Chasing that
1: horror movie high. Yep. And
0: it's not there
1: anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I honestly think that's that's what it's got to be because I think... Well, I mean, I I think I briefly touched on it earlier, and and maybe even joked about it a few times. There's quite a bit to this movie that I I don't, personally, as the viewer, feel like it needed to be there. Um, And I know that's just my personal preference. I know a lot of people enjoy having these bigger scenes and these uh, explanation of things. But sometimes to me, when we're spoon fed so much information, it kind of becomes a little bit annoying to me as the viewer. Cause I'm like, okay, I get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I, you, you don't have to repeat it. I get it. I understand what's going on. Let's move past it. Let's get where we need to be going. And sometimes I feel like that's where this movie falls for me. And maybe that's where my biggest complaint comes as watching as an adult, just because I do get it. I've seen it. I know what happens. And maybe by now I feel like, Every time I rewatch it, I'm like, okay, I get it. She, she's a demon. I know what's gonna happen. This isn't gonna shock me. Uh, so maybe that's it. I don't know. Uh, but it it's, there is still things within the movie that I can 100% appreciate. And, and especially watching it for the podcast last night, I was able to, I guess, dissect it differently than I, I have before. And, uh, appreciate different parts of it that i've never been able to appreciate before just because i hadn't paid attention to it or it just Mm -hmm. wasn't something that um i noticed before or anything like that so i i didn't come out of it disappointed at all that we had to watch it or anything like that and like i said i i can fully appreciate why it tops many many lists uh but for me it was just kind of like okay I, i get it for me
0: i mean don't get me wrong i i think this is a phenomenal film like I said, it's just not something I'm going to watch a lot. I, I, I'm I absolutely interested in seeing the 2000 version. I, I really would be interested in seeing that. But it's just not something I'm going to put on that's fun, like rewatching Shaun of the Dead or yeah. you know, or Halloween or something like that. But yeah, this movie absolutely scared me the hell out of me when I was a kid. And I would imagine if I were someone who had been brought up in the Catholic faith this that could be a whole different thing yeah again it it, i think that's a a big uh, something that we talk about how you know scary movies are such a personal thing yeah because there are people who this is absolutely terrifying to them yeah
1: yeah and i get
0: it i i
1: mean i understand how the concept of that is horrifying but then on the other side of the spectrum you may have those that just don't have any sort of belief in any sort of higher power at all and into them this may just be you know kind of a silly drama or something it, it's definitely I think this movie depends on personal perception on how it's going to be if it's going to be scary to you
0: yeah absolutely everything's going to hit everyone differently but it doesn't mean I'm any less interested in hearing what your prompts answers are I struggled with mine a little bit, but I mean, you were done in like two seconds. You're like, "Bing, bang, boom." I was like, "Oh, okay, I, I'm, I, I am missing something."
1: <laughs> yeah, I thought it was really interesting because you you did ask me. You're like, "Are you already done?" And I was like, "Yeah." And I thought it was funny because some of these I thought was like obvious. We were, yeah, like I was like, "Oh, we're gonna have the same answer because it's like it's obvious." And so, yeah, when you were thinking about it deeper, I started second-guessing myself. I was like, maybe I was watching a different movie. Like, I don't... <laughs> Never
0: second-guess your answer.
1: Your <laughs> answer's your answer. And maybe it's because I've seen it a few more times than, than you have. Yeah. Because throughout my, the movie, I did find myself automatically kind of putting things into categories throughout the movie, where most times I wait until afterwards, and I kind of think about the questions mm-hmm. and, and go back and rethink. Throughout this movie, I was already that's going to be my popcorn spiller. That's going to, you know?
0: Yeah. I I think because this movie, so much of it felt like I was watching it for the first time. Cause I, I honestly, there was just so much of it that I didn't remember. Yeah. That. Yeah. I, I found I was really having to pay attention to what was going on because I got to keep my notes of, of each scene that happens. And so I wasn't able to kind of do that ahead of time. Like I have like with the thing, I already mm-hmm. knew what I was going to do for each one. So the suspense is killing me. So what's your what was your popcorn spiller for this one?
1: So, I think for me the first time that I know I saw this movie and my I had that first jaw dropping moment was the the starting scenes where we see Reagan beginning to go dark and she does start aggressively cussing at people. And it's one of those things I, where me as an adult now while I'm not a parent. And so <laughs> those of you that are parents or or not don't take what I'm saying seriously, take it with a grain of salt, but I don't care if kids cuss. I just, that's not something I really ever genuinely cared about. But for me, what's shocking in this movie is the manner that it's done in. Mm -hmm. It's not just like, Hey mom, you know, I walked to school today and I stepped in shit, you know, like, it's not like that it's aggressive and it's towards her mom. It's towards priests. It's towards people that are supposed to be in authority in, in her life and it's done in a manner where it's clear that she doesn't care. Yeah. It
0: it's like everything in this movie pushes it just that much farther over the
1: line. Yeah. It's like it's
0: not that she cusses, it's the aggressiveness and it's what she says. Yeah. It's yeah. just that much worse. Yeah, I think it that it's that whole thing of they really want you to understand how evil this is yeah
1: how far gone she really is mm-hmm. yeah because i think for me though that moment when we begin seeing her basically it's just the peek into the, the loss of innocence it's, it's the beginning of the downhill slide and so yeah even last night when we were watching i found myself like ah ew. it's just it's hard on the <laughs> yeah, heer, on the yeah. ears you know oh, what I, mean? I did the same thing yeah yeah what about for you though what was your popcorn spiller
0: well, this is the one that I really struggled with. Uh-huh. And the reason was, you know, Popcorn Spillers is supposed to be what was the scariest moment in the film for you. Uh-huh. And so I was like, it wasn't really scary yeah. for me. This this isn't something that I find scary. Mm-hmm. So I was like, there there wasn't really any moment. I, I said, well, wait a minute. We had the moment when the handyman jumped up in the attic. And that did startle me. Yeah. But I think that seems silly to make that my scariest moment. Yeah. And, of course, when I was a kid, it was just her face. That yeah. ju- That is really what stuck <laughs> in Your my mind. Your face is a scary moment.
1: And I just need you to understand that it's happening right now. And I need it to stop. This is, like, the n-
0: best, newest insult.
1: <laughs> Your face is a
0: scary moment.
1: And... <laughs> I'm going to need you to turn around. I'm uncomfortable with the scary moment you've created with your face right now. So I'm going to need you to take two steps back and turn around. Thank you so much. Shh. I'm horrified by what's
0: going on here. Not so much here, but here. Absolutely terrifying. Well, it- for me, really, what does unnerve me? Well, the whole movie unnerves me, but yeah. what really gets me it it's when Reagan speaks backward. I just it uh, that yeah. gives me the willies every time. Yeah. every time.
1: Yeah, yeah. I agree. I, I i i think that's if I had to choose one of the prompts that I struggled on, it would be this one. And it's only because, again, like you said, most of the time we we use this one on a, a fear factor, and because this one now as an adult doesn't scare me, it was hard. For me to answer that one so I that's why I went with more of like the shock factor what what is still a little bit like shocking to me today mm-hmm. um but yeah I think the voice thing absolutely I can totally get behind that one because yeah even today hearing that and like I said even her voice and stuff it's very creepy so up next is scene stealer was this one hard for you not at all this one was pretty obvious 100 it's kinderman oh okay it's not obvious then well, I guess for me.
0: Not obvious to you. It was very obvious to me. As soon as I got to that one, I was like, oh, it's Kinderman. He's, <laughs> he's my Perot. I thought he was totally charming and wonderful. And I wanted him in the film way more. Yeah. Yeah. And what about you?
1: For me, it, I think that's why this was one of those. And I was like, this has got to be obvious. I, I assumed it would be Reagan, which I think is, is very much an obvious answer because she's the uh, main character. Uh, but for me, it's simply because I think as a kid, it really did creep me out so much. And it's very much the face makeup as well. I don't really have a specific scene that I remember when I first saw it being like specifically triggering. But I do remember having flash images <laughs> of her head like floating in my mind. Mm-hmm. And that would be what would I would have dreams of and stuff like that. So I think that's why even now, like my attention just automatically goes to her I mean even throughout the whole movie even the times when she's she's good I think that's why i so inherently zoned in on the fact that she did play this cheerful innocent child so well done cuz it just she automatically like steals my attention the whole time that she's on the screen
0: yeah uh, linda blair was phenomenal she got a lot of flack for making this movie you know the studio had to actually hire security guards to follow her around at all times because of all the death threats she got from like religious zealots who blame her for you know saying that the fact that she was involved with this and played this demon that she was now evil too it's just it's sad that
1: people don't know how to separate yes that. yeah it
0: drives me crazy
1: yeah i agree
0: well what about your gorgasm what do you have for that
1: Again, this one was easy for me, and it's that classic pea soup moment. It's just, it's so damn good. It's classic for a reason, and it's one of those that's effective for many reasons for me. Like I kind of named earlier, the color, the consistency, the manner that it's done in. But then, again, I I put myself in Karis' shoes and receiving that awful, frothy, gross vomit, Mm -hmm. even knowing it's pea soup. Getting frothy, hot pea soup in my face does not sound good either. So it's very (laughs) effective at being like this gory moment that I can appreciate the thought and the processes that I had to go in to get it done.
0: Well, I actually love me some pea soup. It's not for everyone, (laughs) (laughs) but it really is an effective effect.
1: But would you want it like frothy and hot on your face? Oh, frothy. I don't know where you're getting frothy, but no. I mean, I want my soup warm though well yeah but not throwing out your face and your eye
0: oh no that i mean there's no fun in that
1: activity that is not where we put our pea soup around here <laughs> so then what about your orgasm uh well there wasn't i mean yes the pea soup
0: is gory uh, it, it's gross it's puke yeah. nobody likes that yeah uh and and we we had some slashes on her face some makeup effects But I I didn't really consider anything that gory. Yeah. Uh, So I had to go more what was my favorite special effect kind of route with this one. And that levitation was just gorgeous.
1: yeah Uh, Just the
0: whole thing, just from the contact she's wearing to how her face looks to how she portrayed that moment and just kind of going limp. And the effect of making it look like she's actually floating in the air. And so, yeah, I just thought it was phenomenally well done and just beautifully shot.
1: Yeah, it really is. That's one thing that I think I will always be impressed with this movie is, is the effects. So who was your memorable mortality? You know, for a horror movie,
0: we don't get a whole lot of deaths. We get technically four if you count caress's mom yeah yeah and so the most dramatic of those obviously is caress himself yeah he jumps out the window uh but that seemed too obvious to me uh so i went with burke uh even though it was off screen we didn't see it happen fuck that guy
1: yeah yeah i can agree with that i ended up going the obvious route and getting uh, choosing Karis and only because and you mentioned it more before i did talking about that end scene where we have this kind of dramatic resolution with him mm-hmm. um you know and the shakiness of his hands and you know this whole right scene and everything it's just a really well done scene and it's i mean it's a really tough fucking fall down these stairs we see him bit bopping and bouncing all <laughs> over the place and then he lands on his face <laughs> like it's not a smooth ride i mean nope I, I don't think he thought it was going to be one. No. I think he knew what was coming. Yeah, I mean just overall the scene it really is well done. Like said so the the effect of the the hard fall and then mm-hmm. we have this dramatic scene of Yeah like I said, seeing the resolution of his character and everything and, and coming full circle. It's it's just a really well done scene. And I think more effective now as an adult because I while I remember it happening as a kid that's not what hit me as a kid. What stuck mm-hmm. with me was Reagan, obviously. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah, seeing it as an adult to me that stuck with me more than than a few, well, I mean, there's not really many in the movie, like you said, but more than the others.
0: yeah, it it, it certainly is, you know, the big climax of our film. It's the crescendo of our character. Our hero's journey uh, is complete. And although it ends in tragedy, he really is the hero he he saved Reagan's life now Friedkin said that he absolutely anticipated this being somewhat of an ambiguous ending uh, as to whether or not Father Karras is is redeemed or not Uh, because he he says there's this this whole philosophical discussion of well yes he took on the demon and then jumps out the window, thus saving Reagan and ridding the world of the demon. But yet he committed suicide to do so, and in the Catholic faith, that is a sin. So it's meant to be this conversation starter. Is, it, is he saved or not?
1: That's definitely far deeper than I got. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. but I mean, That's definitely an interesting thought. I, I wish I would have thought about it that way. Well, of course— uh, I was watching that ending
0: (laughs) with uh, horror, classic horror on the mind. So I kept expecting the twist of, oh no, Pazuzu isn't really dead, and now it passes into Father Dyer.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And
0: so I kept waiting for the moment, especially since Father Dyer is the last character we see in the entire movie. Yeah, I kept waiting for the moment where he'd do the turn to the camera and he's got like glowing eyes or something. Yes, three
1: sixty. Yeah, but it never happened. That we know of. <laughs> we haven't seen the other ones.
0: That's right. We haven't seen the 2000 version yet.
1: Well, that leads us
0: to the ultimate question. Vault? A dead zone.
1: You go first.
0: <laughs> I, th- there was never a doubt. Even though through this viewing, it never really scared me. Before we even watched I knew it was going in the vault. I, You can't not put The Exorcist in the vault. Even though we didn't find that terror on this viewing, I guarantee you there's plenty of people who do. And just for the sake alone that it is a beautiful and well-made film, definitely, for me, it's in the vault.
1: Yeah, that's kind of the route that I went to. I was at first a little bit torn because I was was really weighing it on my personal viewing this moment um, initially. But then I had to think back to the fact that when I give people my my personal favorite movies this this movie's always on the list and Mm -hmm. it's it's there for a reason and that's because it genuinely truly scared me as a kid and that that therefore makes it a scary movie of mine absolutely and and kind of like you said it's not something that I'm going to sit on sit down with the family and you know start as a conversation piece but it's it's effective in its own way I think no matter what age you are whether you know If you're seeing this movie for the first time, there's pieces in it that are terrifying, that are creepy, that get underneath your skin. And for a movie that was made in the 70s that wasn't intended to be a horror movie, to be able to do that at least once in your lifetime, uh, then I think it definitely deserves its place in the vault, regardless of of whether I'm scared of it now or not.
0: Yeah, the point you made about the fact that it scared you as a kid makes it a scary movie that's 100 percent correct just because it doesn't scare us on this viewing the fact that however many years ago we watched it and it was so scary we remember that fear to this day yeah i think is a very powerful statement about this film Mm -hmm. and i think it's a welcome addition to the wall
1: yeah i absolutely agree and i think obviously many many people agree with us like like we said off the top this is on many lists for a reason
0: it is the ultimate classic well it's gonna do it for us episode 10 is
1: in the can the first 10 we got them down it doesn't feel like we've done 10 episodes Here, i can count them for you mm, i don't believe it let's
0: well, do 10 more all right i'm game okay Well, thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Dead Zone Drive-In on your favorite listening platform. And if you're looking for a way to support us, we would be so grateful if you would leave a rating and or review. And if you screenshot that review and send it to us, we're going to send you your very own Dead Zone Drive-In sticker for free. That's no money's honey. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email us at deadzonedrivein at gmail.com.
1: And if you're wanting to reach us by snail mail, our address is Dead Zone Drive-In at PO Box 12665, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma 73157. We'll be sure to pick it up while we're driving through town. Also, be sure to cruise down to our show notes, where you'll find a link tree URL to our socials and our Letterboxd, which is a site and app to keep up with all the movies we're watching. Lastly, be sure to seek us out next week as we'll be watching Blackula. And if you want to check out its trailer, don't worry, we got you. It's also linked down in the show notes.
0: And I am so excited. We are starting a new series. Yeah, I'm pretty amped about it too. And of course, a big thank you to our house band, Slime and the Maggot Boob. During last week's screening, their keyboardist, Norman, randomly did all our laundry. He totally got the stain out of my Buffy shirt. Thank goodness that thing's been there forever and it smells so much better now. And remember, if you're looking for the Dead Zone and want to join us for a weekend screening, if you've listened to this episode in its entirety, you'll have been provided with all the information you need. Don't forget your tickets. Good night, folks, and please buckle up.
1: We'll be waiting for you.
0: And, of course, a big thank you to our house band, Slime and the Mabbit... (laughs) Mabbit. (laughs) Slime and
1: the Mabbit, Begoob. (laughs) Mabbit Magoob My slime and my Mabbit Magoob Mabbit Magoob Who Who was that? Who was that? Mabbit Magoober, (laughs) Magoober.